Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna, today we're going to start the episode off with me asking you, have you ever grown a vegetable? I have. Okay, what did you grow? I grew one summer only, or one fall um, I grew really, really delicious heirloom tomatoes and they were like so good that you could eat them like apples. And I'm not even a tomato person. Wait, where did you live when you grew the beautiful, wonderful tomatoes? In Portland, Oregon. Our neighbors came over and like the next year we're like, do you have any more of those tomatoes? And we're like, no, for some reason only this year they grew and we this was the only year they had these heirloom tomato seeds, but they... I still think about them. They were the best tomatoes I've ever had. And like I said, I am not a tomato person. Yeah. I mean, one time I made tomato soup, my normal recipe, I always make vegan tomato soup with um, like homegrown heirloom tomatoes. Mm. And they were so good. I've never had a soup that good in my life. And Mm. I still, it haunts me as well. The homemade tomatoes. It's. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. I, cause I think we were at, we were like at a Portland nursery and we're just like, Ooh, these like, they had like some fancy name and we're just like, ooh, like fancy tomatoes. But they legit were so fucking good. Like, and we never found them again. And we never got to, we never grew tomatoes as good again. Were they seeds or like the sapling? I think they were seeds. Wow. Wait, That's they may cool. have been saplings, but I feel like they were like seeds. I feel wow. like, but my boyfriend at the time, like, was more like into doing stuff. I do not have a green thumb. Me neither. Mm -mm. So maybe technically I have not. Maybe that was it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but I like helped like water them and stuff. So I'm going to say I take a little bit of ownership. I think if you watered them even once, you did it. Yeah. And I I was the one who actually was like, we should get these. I'm going to say you grew tomatoes. That's what I'm going to say. But like, since Portland, like the only things we could really get growing were tomatoes, kale, strawberries, and rhubarb. That's pretty good though, still. But uh, rhubarb, we realized, is poisonous to dogs. Yes. And we had a dog at the time, and we were, I was just lived in fear that the dog, because it was a lab, and you know, labs, like they tend to eat anything. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Very scary. So, but, and then the strawberries were very, they were very, very tiny. <laughs> were they bitter? No, they were good. Oh, okay, okay. But that's like good, every, good. but you know, like all the cats or like, I don't know, raccoons like from the neighborhood would get them as soon as they were like ripe. Yes. Uh, I definitely remember being a kid and like my mom would sometimes try to grow avocado trees from the avocado pit. Did you ever do that? No. All right. So like you, you take your avocado pit and then you stick toothpicks in it, like four. So it's like a little cross going out of the avocado <laughs> Is this pit. Like- I was like, I grew up in Colorado in the 90s. We did not have avocado. Oh, okay. This is a California story. I didn't realize. It's so funny. Like, I literally don't think I had avocado until I moved to Portland. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't realize the rest of the country was living like this. I had no idea. Maybe it was just the night. I feel like avocados were, like, not a thing until the 2000s, and I had, like, moved out. Maybe it is... California, we had avocado trees in California. They just grow, you know. I think, like, you know, in Colorado, we had, like, we had, in my backyard growing up, we had an an acre in the back because we Mm -hmm. had horses. So, we like, just from the people before, we had, like, grapes. There was, like, a peach tree. 
there was like an apple tree, but the bears ate them all. So he never. Oh had my god, there were bears. Oh yeah, just in your yard. Oh yeah, all the time. Okay, I am so sorry. I don't mean to malign the great state of Colorado, but learning that I got avocados and you got bears, I'm very <laughs> grateful that I was raised in California. Yeah, there's wildlife, but you know, respect you respect the wildlife, they'll respect you back. That's what I've you know. I feel like the people who always get in trouble with wild animals, they're fucking with them. Yeah, maybe. I feel like if you kind of let them be, or like, I think with bears, you're supposed to get up really loud and be no. like, shoo, shoo, go away. I don't want to like, do get that. Get out of here. I don't want to have to punk a bear. I don't feel like but I ever want snakes, that experience. snakes, don't do that. Oh my God. I've never even seen a wild snake. I've definitely seen like a, I've heard a rattler or two. No, I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> well, if you had grown up in California, you probably would have done this as a kid where you take the avocado pit and you stick the toothpicks in it, like a cross coming out of it. And then you get a cup of water and then you rest the avocado pit with the toothpicks in it on top of the water. So it's like bottom is just submerged in water and then slowly the bottom of the pit splits open over time and roots grow out of it and then the top splits open and then a little sprout grows out of it and it's the beginning of an avocado tree oh and then you just put it in the ground yeah and then you just put it in the ground so we used to start these all the time every time we ate an avocado my mom and i would start one of these because i love doing it so much um but neither my mom nor i has a green thumb so they didn't make it too far they would all die <laughs> pretty soon after that process um, and I also didn't realize it takes like five to 13 years before the avocado tree even grows an avocado. Like in my head, I was like, yeah, we're going to do this and have a whole avocado next week from it. That's like, okay, when I was in school, I think I was in first grade and it was for Earth Day. They gave everyone like a little sapling, but my parents planted it. I don't know what was up with our front yard, but it grew everything. Like it grew ferns. You are not supposed to be able to grow ferns in Colorado. Really? Yes. Wow. Like it's, but for some reason, just anything grew in our front yard, but they planted that sapling when I was like, I want to say like six and I drove by the other day. It is a full fucking tree. Wow. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. But it took like four, like it was like up to my knees for like ever. And so it took like 30 years to grow a tree. It took fucking 30 years to grow a little tree. That's pretty cool though. Well, yeah. So the avocados, they never came to fruition. They never treed. Um, but it was still fun and cool as a kid because, you know, you got to see this, this thing growing. I don't know. It felt novel to me, but it probably felt novel because I didn't grow up around nature. But, you know, my current boyfriend, Chris, his family has always grown like these pretty substantial vegetable and fruit gardens in their backyard. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, like no matter what. Um, and when I met him, I remember thinking that was so cool. Like I never heard of anybody who did that before. Uh, and I was raised eating packaged and processed foods a lot. And I noticed right when I met him, like, wow, this guy eats like a lot of vegetables, just in general, just very vegetable focused. And then I met his parents and they lived in the Inland Empire here in Southern California, which if you don't know, it's like if every strip mall in Arizona moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with love. I say that with love. My best friend is also from the Inland Empire. We call it the IE. I have a strong like feeling of like affinity for the IE. It's like the desert version of California Central Valley where I'm from. Very trashy strip mall vibes. So whatever. So they as you can imagine. They have bakers too. They have bakers too. Yeah. So as you can imagine, it's not like you would expect to walk into somebody's backyard at a regular house in the Inland Empire and see like a whole fucking farm basically. Um, and it was very, very surprising to me. I'd never seen anybody do this. So yeah, you walked into this like just normal middle-class house, you know, not even, we're not talking like two-story fancy house. We're not talking a fancy street, just like a normal fucking house. And in the backyard, there's like 
raised planter boxes and trellises and this huge avocado tree and there's potted fruit plants. I mean, it was just beautiful. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. And my mom told me that when he was, a, his mom told me that when he was a kid, he, if he was hungry, would just like walk out into the backyard and just like grab a tomato and bite into it like an apple. Whoa. Yeah. So they just grew up with all this access to fresh, amazing food. And when his family would harvest their garden for like years, when they were still in the IE, they would sometimes pickle things and put things in jars. And we would always end up with these amazing pickles and spears of like spicy seasoned zucchini with peppers. They also grew in the backyard. And I had never experienced anything like this before. And Chris, for his part, he like tried to do some backyard gardening at our house too, because he grew up with it and he was so used to it. But we have pretty bad light. So all we can really grow is squash, which is not too exciting. I'm not a huge squash fan. I'm not a huge squash fan either. We can grow a lot of squash, but neither of us super love squash. And like you were saying about the strawberries, all the bugs come and eat it anyway. So you don't, you get these weird half-eaten, spoiled, weird squashes. And it's not... It's not super great. It could be cooler. It could be a lot cooler just because of the light setup we have here. It's like they either get totally torched or they get no light at all. But I will say Southern California life, right? Our fruit trees are really successful. Atwater Village, Central LA, that's where you grow fruit trees, I guess. So we have like, you know, all of these fruit trees all around the property. We have, I think there's like kumquats in the back and there's guava on one side and mm. we have lemons in the front. And I also have this dream of like enclosing my front porch to make it a greenhouse to grow food inside That'd one day. Cool. It'd be so cool. But I feel like the mailman wouldn't like having to walk into a greenhouse to give me my packages. Ooh, he's cool. He's cool. He's pretty cool. We have like an alternative mailman now. Ooh. He's got tattoos. Anyway, so I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. And I've seen people do like similar things where they just like grow food in their houses and like really unassuming houses. Just like an apartment like have you seen that chick on tiktok who grows her own microgreens on her countertop in her kitchen mm -hmm. she grows them like inside of a mason jar mm. and she just like cusses at you and yells at you and is like this is how you fucking grow microgreens and it's like a really intense viewing experience but i appreciate it a lot wow yeah and there's you know all these people who like grow things from their vegetable scraps have you seen this Mm -mm. Oh my god, yeah, you can like take a vegetable scrap and like put it in water and then it grows a whole new vegetable. Whoa. Yeah, so I don't know. I just think this stuff is really cool because especially where we live in the United States, you know, over 10% of US households experienced food insecurity last year. Wow. Which is a lot. It's one in 10. And it's just really captivating to imagine what kind of communities we could have if everybody was able to somehow grow their own food, even just like a little bit. So anyway, obviously, I was thinking about all this, I was thinking about growing vegetables. And uh, you know, it led me to today's topic, which is at-home food gardening. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so Kenna, what um, types of produce do you eat the most? What kind of, what veggies and fruits are you eating all the time? <sighs> Lettuce. Um, carrots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I haven't been doing a lot of produce shop lately because uh, ADHD, I'm going to blame, I'm just going to blame it on that. I think I'm just going to blame it on that. I think that's okay. I think you get a free um, pass for life. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like it's like tomatoes, cucumber, um, avocado, although it could be considered a fruit. Yeah. I can just say fruit or vegetables. Okay. You know, what do you, what do you buy in? What do um, you, you know, bananas, apples. Um, I sometimes go for like, I like grapes, but you know, 
It just depends. I think we're the only two people on the planet who like those um, cotton candy flavored oh, grapes. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. Everybody else thinks they're deranged. Nobody else will eat really? them. But I us. love them. My favorite thing them. to do is eat grapes on the beach, and those are the top tier grapes for the beach. <gasps> they're so good. They taste just like cotton candy. It's amazing. I think like the veggies that I eat the most often are just like onions, garlic, carrots, broccoli, lettuce, spinach, celery, potatoes, avocados, same kind of things as you, I guess. They're like pretty staple foods. And um, those are all like really easy foods to grow, it turns mm. out, in your house. Uh, but, you know, I also have ADHD, so I, I can't grow them, but one could grow them. <laughs> I will not remember to water them. I feel like if we, if we got really into if we decided that this was going to be our thing we would just drop everything and do it we'd have to hyper focus on the garden and then we would do great yeah it's true that's true um i actually found a list of foods that are supposed to be the easiest to grow just in an apartment even without a balcony and it was really interesting do you want to hear sure all right okay so we've got leafy greens like lettuce and kale and I will say, actually, when Chris was trying to grow food in our backyard, we had some success growing leafy greens in our planter box. They, they just got eaten by bugs, too. Mm -hmm. Those were gone fast. Okay, and then spinach, um, which I always thought was leafy green, but I'm realizing that maybe now it's different because it's part of this thing called an amaranth family, which is known for flowers. So now I'm realizing I have no idea what spinach is, and I'm having an existential crisis about oh, it. Oh, now I'm like, whoa. Yeah, no. I'm not a huge spinach fan, to okay. be frank. I love, I love a spinach. I love it. I like... You know, sometimes I like spinach mixed in with other lettuces, but I, I fucking hate cooked spinach. Oh, I can no. see you being an arugula person. I like arugula, mm -hmm. but like cooked spinach, no. Okay, I like it. I like it. Um, also like root vegetables. So that would be like our potatoes and sweet potatoes, beets maybe. I like a beet. Yeah. So they need like depth, right? Because they grow underground, but they're pretty easy to grow in a small space if you just have like a pot. Also, radishes, turnips, carrots, similar. Also, onions and garlic, which, you know, randomly, I was remembering this too. When we lived at that house on Saxon, we had this, like, corner patch where I just, like, threw a bunch of onion and garlic seeds one day, and they all grew. Whoa. Just, like, this weird – so we had these, like, weird, dirty onions in That's the ground cool. by too the house. Too bad I can't eat garlic. They give me terrible migraines. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I use it all the time, and it's pretty easy to grow. And then also herbs, but that's not, like, mm. food. That's just a seasoning. But still. it's still pretty cool that you can grow them really easily. And then this one blew my mind, beans and peas. Really? Yeah, I would not expect this. It's never even occurred to me to grow a bean or a pea. And I am ashamed to admit, I had no idea what it looked like to grow a bean. I don't know either. I had to look at it. It's like a bush. It's like a, a bean grows on a bush. What? Okay, in my mind, I was like, beans, how do they grow? And I'm just like, in my mind, it's just a hole underground where you put a bean and the bean just magically multiplies. I literally think that's how I thought it worked. I think I was picturing maybe like turnips, but it's just a bean. But that's not, that makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know why. I feel like, I'm like, as an adult, I feel like I should know this, but there was a gap in my education, apparently, yeah, and how beans are grown. I have no idea how beans are grown. Um, also, not a thing that's easy to grow in your house from anything I found, but just like vaguely related. Have you ever seen a picture of how asparagus grows? Mm -mm. It's literally just asparagus, like a stalk sticking up out of the ground. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty good. Um, also, bean related story, jumping around. Um, the other day, one of my friends was like, what do beans taste like? And I was like, what's what? the question? And she was like, I've never had a bean before. What's it taste like? And I was like, what? Yeah, I know. And I was like, you've, you've had a bean before. And she's like, mm -mm, no, I never liked the way they looked. Never tried them. 
And then I was like trying to explain a bean to her. And I'm like, there's all types of beans. There's these different ones. And then you can season them. And then you can refry some. And then there's garbanzo beans. And then she was just like, mm, okay, maybe I'll try it. And then on her own, she tried a bean. And I was so like, okay, what did you think of the bean? You know, because a major staple of my diet, I just eat rice and beans like with every meal. And her response, her review of the bean was, it was all right. That's that's kind of how I feel because I, I legumes do not agree with me. Give right. also give me headaches. Right, right. You have all the food the food sensitivities. Um, but I just just I didn't know there were people on the planet who had never had a bean. It was almost kind, impressive. Kind of blows my mind, but right. I I'm sure it's real. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if I could just figure out how to grow like the easy ones you're supposed to be able to grow in an apartment, bean included, that would be like everything I eat plus rice that would just be it like this could really change my life especially if I could get like a tomato based sauce out of this somehow this would be major um but you know it's never gonna happen and I just have to be okay with that do you think that you'd be able to grow enough okay I feel like what I could do I feel like I could maybe grow one plant one thing one easy thing maybe uh, so no, not enough. <laughs> I could grow one bean. I think is what I could do. <laughs> I don't think it would be enough. It reminds me of like, I feel like there's like an animation, like an old timey, like, I want to say like Mickey Mouse cartoon where they're cutting one bean and it's like paper thin slices. Yes, that would be me with the bean. Um, okay, so then also though, on top of this, there's the things like I was explaining where like you can just like buy it from the grocery store and then you can regrow more of it from it if that makes sense does oh, that make sense yes i've done this with green onions okay yeah green onions number one thing that's easy to do you grow it from your scraps so you just like cut them like an inch from the roots you put it in a glass of water and then you just get more green onions yeah you just have to be careful because i uh made the mistake of not changing the water enough and it got all yeah it gets slimy it gets slimy, slimy real slimy yeah you can also do it with celery you just like cut it like two inches from the base put it in a bowl of water near a window and then it just becomes more celery i'm not going to do that because i have a vendetta against celery celery. It is the grossest food on the planet. It tastes like spicy soap. I'm not taking any questions at this time. Okay. Well, I love <laughs> celery. So whatever. I feel like I'm like in the minority of people who's like, I hate celery. It is my enemy. Okay. Canna versus celery. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, there's also like lettuce, bok choy, cabbage. You can just put their stump in a bowl filled halfway with water and then you just set it and then they grow more leaves. Really? Yeah. And then leeks. I've only had a leek like three times in my life, but it is fun to say the word leek. Uh, so I included it on the list. So you can leave like two inches of leek from the bottom. I don't even know what a leek looks like. I'm not going to pretend like I know what a whole leek looks like. In my like. mind, it's the same as bok choy, but I know that's not correct. It's like white celery in my mind. Yeah. I, I don't, don't know. I don't know. I don't think I've had leeks very often either. I've only had like somebody made a leek soup and I had some like I've definitely three had leek soup. Yeah. So whatever a leek is, if, if you just leave two inches of the leek and then you put it in a bowl of water, it makes more leek. Um, there's also herbs like basil, mint, cilantro. As long as you have like two to three inches of stem going on, you can put the stems upright in a glass of water and it grows. My mom actually does this. She keeps them in glasses of water in her fridge. So they just continue to grow. Mm. Then pineapple. Okay. Pineapple blows my mind because did you know that every pineapple can only make one pineapple? What? Like the, the pineapple bush or tree only grows one at a time. Huh. Yeah, and I only know this because um, I was watching this home decorating show once and one of the guys on the show whose like house was getting decorated was weirdly into growing pineapple plants. 
So he would just have all these like pots around his ha- house with like half of a pineapple plant in it that was growing. And he was just like talking about the pineapple plants. He was so weird. And I really related to him and appreciated him mm. and all his like weird pineapple plants that he like get out of the way and keep safe. Anyway, so it's, it's hard, but if you grab the crown of the pineapple by the leaves and then you twist it, you remove it so the stalk is still attached, which is like the pineapple spine. I don't know how to say it without it being creepy. It's its spine. And then you uh, remove some of the lower leaves to really expose that pineapple spine. Then you want to make sure there's no flesh on it. It's fruit flesh. It's getting really graphic. Sorry. It's sorry. Like it's saw. <laughs> I know. I'm like, it's saw, but for pineapples, I'm so sorry. So you take the flesh off the spine. <laughs> and then, it sounds like true crime podcast. I know. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, you stick it in a bowl of water. Then you start your pineapple tree. And then it'll and grow then you, one then more Then you pineapple. drown the pineapple. And then you murder the pineapple. And that's what happens. Okay. And then also you've got like sweet potatoes and regular potatoes. You can easily grow more potatoes out of them. Oh. And sweet potatoes. Super mm. easy. Uh, and then there's like all these people in the United States who do this stuff from their houses, from their apartments. They grow their own food under very normal circumstances, you know? And typically, roughly one in three households in the United States is growing some of their own food at any given time, which is honestly so many more people than I ever would have imagined. Interesting. Right? It's like a lot of people. Uh, however, during the pandemic, the number shot up like massively, which I think makes sense, right? People had time, they were really broke and stressed out about money. And during the pandemic, 65% of Americans started growing some type of food on their own at their house. Yeah, I think for me, all I all it was was the green onions. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you count that. You're, gro- you're one of them. <laughs> yeah, I think it would count. You're one of the 65%. And out of the people who were gardening during the pandemic for food, 76% said it started as a hobby. And 60% started doing it because all the people panic buying like massive amounts of ketchup or whatever at the grocery store stressed them out. Mm. They were like, I don't know what's happening with the food supply chain. I'm going to become my own food supply chain. Oh my gosh. The supply chain is wild. I saw a person on TikTok basically be like, yeah, we, how like corporations make money is they only have like two weeks of supply on at a time because it costs money to like stock, you know, to warehouse stuff. But like in an emergency, you're fucked. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. And I think the supply chain's still super fucked up, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I found that today looking for a washer and dryer. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Random shit. Uh, But yeah, so, you know, all these people, they were freaked out about the supply chain, growing their own food. And a lot of that increase in home farming or home gardening, whatever you want to call it, it was among low people and low income people. So households with incomes under $35,000 per year, they increased their at-home food gardening by 38% since 2008. Wow. Yeah. And then also young people too. Um, there's this guy, Mike Mat- Mat- Matalo? Mat- Matayo, M-E-T-A-L-L-O. I'll let everybody decide how they want to pronounce that. But he's the president and CEO of the National Gardening Association. And he said, we are seeing more people, particularly young people, actively engaged in growing their own food. The growth in just five years is pretty spectacular. So- 29% of younger households, which are people aged 18 to 34 years when they were doing this, they were growing food at home. And in 2008, there were 8 million millennial food gardeners. And that figure rose to 13 million in 2013, which is an increase of 63%. And that's even before we got into the pandemic. Yeah, you know what? I keep seeing, like, I just feel like this is anecdotally, this is like, it's in the air when I ask people, like, what would you really, what do you really want to be doing 
a lot of people are being like, I just wish that I could like work, have a goat farm or like have a, I mean, that's not farming, but like have like a, you know, I just want to grow, like, I've heard people be like microgreens. I want to just like have like my own little farm where I grow vegetables. And I was just like, why is this becoming such a thing? Well, I think it's a thing because it's like the idea of self-sufficiency, the idea of escaping the capitalist machine. You're like, what if I didn't need money to live? What if I could just support myself without money? Because so many people are seeing how the capitalist system is failing us. We want to believe there's something different we can do that's in our control. Yeah, but I feel like it is like, to me, it was people who were just like, when I was younger, people who wanted to do that were fucking weirdos. (laughs) They were like, they were alternative, like, they were alt alt people. Yes. And now it's like more like, like not nor, but it's like more prevalent, you know? Well, I think I know why. Oh. I've done some research that we'll talk about, but Ooh, I'll give you foreshadowing. a little, I'll foreshadow it now. I'll tell you now. Uh, the more fucked the economy is, the more people want to become farmers. There's a link. It's mm. a link. Um, but yeah, so, you know, while all this is happening, obviously indoor gardening has also taken off. So that went up 30%, which, yeah, again, just like you said, colloquially makes sense to me because young people tend to live in smaller cramped places without much access to a yard, but they still want to do shit like microgreens or whatever, just to have some semblance of control. Uh, and I also like cannot personally imagine being able to work full time and also maintain a garden, but it's worth noting that 47% of gardeners do also have full-time jobs. Only 22% are retired. And I feel like we tend to think gardeners are retired. Huh. I mean, that makes sense. Like when we when i lived in portland we were quote unquote gardening it was basically just like you water really early in the morning and then later at night like a farmer yeah so it was just like so you did it after you know after work hours and you know sometimes you just get in the routine i always think about my skincare routine when i was younger i never thought that i could wash my face twice a day and now no matter how you know if i come home and i like I've had one too many beers. I will still do my skincare routine. So you got to make the indoor farming gardening like your skincare routine. Yeah. You're just like, you're just like, you know, you're like, you know, I normally would be watching TV right now, but I got I to gotta water the tomatoes. Yeah. I think I could get into that. I think I could get into it if it were indoors um, because that's how lazy I am. If it involves opening a door, I'm probably not going to do it. But if it's next to me in the room, I might. I might be able to handle that. I'm just very big on routine. So yeah. like once I make it a habit, it's like I can't stop. Right. Exactly. That's our that's our ADHD brand. Uh. I know. It's like, you know, sometimes I'm like, do I have a personality no. or is it just ADHD? We don't. We just have ADHD, but that's okay. <laughs> we have it together. Okay. So it's worth noting that when Americans grow food for themselves, they usually are also still buying groceries. It's not like they're like becoming 100% self-sufficient. So in fact, only 86% of home gardeners have even eaten food that they grew, which is interesting because like that shows that weirdly a lot of homegrown food is going to waste and just 14% of people are putting in all the effort and not even eating it. That blows my mind. I, to me, it might be like the thing where it's like, it got eaten by bugs. Not going to, okay. Not it gonna could be that. It. it could be that. Yeah. Unsuccessful gardeners. Unsuccessful. That was me most of the time. I ate some of it. I ate some of it. I did. I, I tried to eat the zucchini. I ate some of the leafy greens, but There's this one farmer who was kind of talking about growing up on a farm and I was reading about his experience. And he said, you know, there have been times that I grew about 70% of the food my family ate, but things like sugar, flour, caffeine, tropical fruits, they were all purchased staples. So even he, and he was like a really intense farmer. Like today he owns this like huge farm that he grows all his food on. Uh, he's still like, yeah, there's just some shit you're going to buy. Like, you're not going to grow everything. It's not I'm like not a pure a banana state. tree in, you know, Michigan or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
but even him being like, yeah, I grow 70% of the food my family eats. That's even really uncommon because that's a huge amount of food to be growing. Most people with access to farming or homegrown food, they use it to supplement their grocery store purchases, not the other way around. Like they're not supplementing their homegrown food with the grocery store like he was. So some accounts say that homegrown food is just 0.1% of all the food that we eat today in the United States. By contrast, though, the primary system for growing food we use the most today is that more industrialized kind of factory farming thing we think about a lot. And it's a little bit convoluted and complicated and it involves like a lot of things traveling around the world before we even get them. So I thought it would be interesting before we talk about like home farming and gardening to talk about the thing that it stands in opposition to, right? Like the mainstream system of food production, how it works today, because uh, I realized that I actually don't know much about how food ends up in the grocery store. Yeah, I feel like I have like some idea, but like, I'm just like, I don't know. The farmers, they got the John Deere plow and then they do the thing and then they sell it to brokers and then somehow it gets to the supermarket. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're ahead of me because you've been on a riding lawnmower. <laughs> I've only seen them animated on King of the Hill. I don't even think I've seen a riding lawnmower in person. So. Yeah, oh my, well, my mom also grew up on a farm in Nebraska. So she tells me like some farm stories sometimes, but it mainly has to do with... Um, how they like the cream off the the cream is better when you when you um do your own milk you do your own milk you milk your own cow when you milk your own cow okay all right but she and then uh she yeah she was like we also ate duck which Hmm. is not normal to me i i don't think i've I Honestly, think a lot I don't of people know. eat duck. I think a lot of people eat but duck. But she's like, but we had ducks to eat. And I was like, ugh, I don't think I've ever had duck in my life. Oh, really? I think I have had duck. I feel like duck is pretty, I mean, I feel like duck is pretty common in Asian cultural dishes, for sure. Yeah. And I then just, in like French dishes and French people eat I duck just, a lot. I, I just don't know why that is something, you know, when you're like, wow, I don't think I've ever eaten that. And then I was vegan for a long time. So I think yes. just for some reason. Just, didn't happen. Just didn't happen. I've even had vegan duck. Wow. It was a little dry. But yeah, my um that was the only thing where my mom was like, yeah, the farm the farm duck is better. The and farm I- duck is better. I don't want I mean, I'm too vegan for the whole thought. I'm like, I don't want to kill anything that's my pet and that's why I can't live on a farm, but also I'm like I don't want to kill anything that wasn't my pet either. That's why I'm <laughs> so I, that's the annoying vegan in me. I'm like, oh, sad. But, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's, it was like Yeah, I think it was in my mom's head. It was like very like what is it? Uh like you know, holding two thoughts up, uh, cognitive dissonance. Yes, 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 yes. Well, see, this is why I can't farm because um, like sometimes I go on TikTok and I see those videos where people are just friends with cows and then I cry for three hours. Aww. Yeah, so two vegan for it, but that's okay. So, okay, the food we have for the most part, right? The vast majority of the food produced in the United States today, it comes from these larger commercial farms and not just people's backyards. However, family farms still make up the bulk of commercial farming activity in the country. So here's some numbers. They might just, you know, be white noise, but 86% of U.S. agricultural products are produced on family farms or ranches, which is different than a backyard farm, right? Because the size of it and it's like intended commercial output, it's just not categorized as a backyard farm, but it still is a family farm. Now, large scale industrial family and non-family farms, they're only around 5% of the total farms that exist in the United States, but they account for 57% of total farming in U.S. dollars. 
And small scale family farms, they represent like probably what your mom grew up on, like 90% of total farms in the United States, but they account for just 20% of total production. So basically what this means is that when it comes to farms, there are a lot of little guys, but they aren't making nearly as much as like the few big guys are. So we have these people who are like the farm overlords with their giant mega industrial factory farms, and they're the ones doing most of the food production that we have here. So most American farming is cattle, corn, and soybeans. And that all together contributes to 1% of the U.S. like GDP, right? That's what comes from farming in general. So one U.S. farm today on average would feed around 166 people per year. But that would happen either with like American people or people living in other countries abroad. Because like we talked about, farming is now this like interconnected global thing. Our food system globally is just super connected. So like in 2018, nearly $140 billion worth of American agricultural products were exported worldwide. And that's around 25% of everything that U.S. farms produced. And we're, you know, kind of importing a lot to more than half of the fresh fruit and almost a third of the fresh vegetables that Americans buy now comes from other countries, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like you wouldn't want to try to grow pineapples year round in Minnesota. Like it wouldn't make sense, right? But you might want to eat a pineapple year round. Unless you're that guy with all the pineapples. Unless you're that guy with all the pineapples. <laughs> he loves growing pineapples. But certain places are just like better equipped to produce certain types of crops because of the climate and what's going on there. And we have this rich history of, you know, getting crops from other places, sometimes just for trade, but sometimes we import crops and grow them as our own. And it turns out that a lot of crops that we associate with certain places actually originated from somewhere else totally different, like just a long time ago. Oh, yeah. It's like in the book we were reading, like uh, the David Graeber book. Like... Oh, right. Book Club. If you want to follow Book Club with us, we're on David Graeber's The Dawn of Everything. Yep. Yes. One day we'll do a, a bonus app recapping. Yeah, we will. That'll be fun. Um, Okay, so I had an idea, Kenna, that in the spirit of this idea of crops popping up places all over the world, maybe we could do a food origin quiz because mm. you're good at test taking. Mm. Are you down? Yeah. All right, okay. So I'm going to say a food item, and you just tell me what general region or continent or whatever you think it came from naturally. Okay. All right. So it's only four. It's going to be a little one. <laughs> and sometimes I hate you with 20. <laughs> okay, so the first one is tomatoes. Oh, tomatoes. Um, North America? Okay, tomatoes are actually from South America. Oh. And that really surprised me because most people, they're such like a staple of like Italian food. Yeah, I think I remember this being like, people are like, oh, like, you know, tomato, like tomatoes, Europe. But I was like, I think they came from like, like the Americas. Yeah, they came from the Americas. They were imported due to colonization. Um. They didn't reach Europe until the Spanish colonized the Americas. Okay, so number two, strawberries. Oh. <laughs> Maybe like the Middle East? Okay, strawberries actually come from North and South America. Interesting. Yeah, so oh the strawberries gosh. you were growing in Portland, they might have just grown there. Oh, okay. I think I was like just like trying to think. Of, I, I was just thrown out of place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the third one is potatoes. Hmm. North America. Close. South America. I would have thought they were like Russia <laughs> for some reason. I picture root vegetables. As well, being like you Eastern know, I European. think like I, I kept thinking Europe and I was like, I don't think that's right. I think it's the same thing as the um, the first one you mentioned. Yeah. Tomatoes. tomatoes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then the last one is garlic. Your enemy. My enemy. Um, 
did it come from Europe? It came from Central Asia. Oh. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these were all super interesting to me. Tomato, definitely the most surprising. But today, more than two-thirds of the crops that underpin national diets originally came from somewhere else completely, usually pretty far away. And we see this happening all throughout history. Um, not totally independent of horrific colonization and genocide, I will yeah. say. But that's the thing that happened. So according to Colin Corey, who's a plant scientist at the International Center for Tropical Agriculture and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, cultures adopt foreign crops very quickly after coming into contact with them. We've been connected globally for ages, and yet there's still change going on. He points out that potatoes were being grown in Europe just 16 years after being discovered in the Andes. And there's a strong colonization link with all of this too, like we mentioned, since we see Europe in particular adopting a lot of foods they quote unquote discovered while they were invading other countries. And also that whole European spice trade thing. They've always been very motivated and trying to get more foods and flavors into Europe. So in the United States and a lot of our own American food staples, right, that we think about here, they all depend on crops from the Mediterranean, for example, or mm. West Asia. Meanwhile, U.S. farming is centered on soybeans from East Asia and corn from Mexico and Central America, as well as wheat and other crops from the Mediterranean. So on top of this history, over the last 40 years, we've seen other things happen that have kind of facilitated like crops traveling too. We've seen improvements in roads. We've seen like containerized shipping and storage technology advance. We've seen horticulturists develop these new varieties of certain plants and new growing practices to adapt them to warmer climates, which is important because of climate change. And also we have different produce now that can just be grown in different places. The USDA also changed regulations for what types of things they can like import into the United States. So now kind of newish things like, oh, we can get peppers from Peru now. We can get apples from China. We can get avocados from Colombia. And they're always kind of having these testing periods going on where they're testing out certain types of produce from certain types of places to make sure it won't like become an invasive species that totally takes over the United States somehow and kills all plant life and wildlife and, oh, you know, geez. creates like a weird <laughs> ecological disaster. Oh, man. So, I think after living through COVID, I'm like, I don't want to plant COVID. No, we don't want any more ecological disasters. Although I will say, this reminds me of that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Happening. Did you ever watch this? No. Okay, I'm going to ruin an M. Night Shyamalan movie. So if you were really invested in figuring out what happens in The Happening, one of the least successful M. Night Shyamalan movies of all time, which I'm pretty sure has been out for like 12 years at this point you know, skip ahead a few seconds. But basically, this M. Night Shyamalan movie shows all these people like losing their minds and, uh, you know, content warning suicide, killing themselves in like all these ways. And then in the end, it turns out that the plants were releasing a toxin that made oh, all the humans kill. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, because we were a parasite and we were harming the plants and the, the whole planet was like, oh, for the planet to survive, we have to kill all the humans. Yeah. Anyway, you don't want that happening. You don't want the happening happening because you imported the wrong pepper from the wrong place and yeah. then all the trees got mad at yeah. you. I think that's what it's about. So that's what the USDA does. They basically run an M. Night Shyamalan movie from <laughs> what I've been able to put together. Um, but yeah, they're constantly testing things and being like, okay, we can bring this thing in. We know it's safe now. So in recent years, the proportion of imported fresh fruit eaten in the United States, it rose from 23% back in 1975 to 53.1% in 2016. Hmm. So every year we kind of get more comfortable eating foods from different places. And as a result, these crops that are grown other places like mangoes, limes, avocados, grapes, asparagus, artichokes, squash, they increase in consumption in the United States. While things that are grown more domestically here, we just kind of get bored of them like peaches, oranges, cabbage, celery, mm. enemy number two. Yeah. 
So those things go down in demand because we just kind of get sick of them. And we're like, oh, new fun thing. Let's eat that. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that there are like trends in food? Like definitely with like, you know, like avocado big, bacon big. Yes. Remember the kale? Kale was huge for a minute. Yeah. What's big right now? Um, I I actually don't know know either. Mango? Mango? No. Mango had a moment though. Mango had a moment. I don't Now I'm not sure what the of the moment is i don't either i'm sure it's gonna be one of those things that you can only see in retrospect yeah microgreens maybe it is microgreens we've said microgreens like 12 times already so it must be microgreens we're living in the microgreen moment maybe so you know all of this happens people's tastes change they get sick of things something new seems exciting and while all this is happening it also means that you know people in the united states are getting to enjoy access to year-round fresh foods because in the winter time when things are harder to grow we're importing things from places where it's not winter due to hemisphere climate differences. So we can eat these like imported berries and grapes in the wintertime, which is actually pretty cool. Globally, foreign crops make up 69% of country food supplies and farm production. And nutritionists say that having year round available produce fresh on hand is really good for everyone, but especially good for people in places like North America, where we live. Regions far from centers of agricultural biodiversity. So that would be places like North America, uh, Northern Europe, Australia, we are most dependent on foreign crops. And by the same token, countries and regions of diversity that are still growing and eating their traditional staples like South Asia or West Africa, they are the least dependent on foreign crops, which means that predominantly white countries are benefiting the most from an interlinked international food chain, even though we seem to be the ones who are also kind of the most skeptical of it. Have you noticed that? Hmm. I feel like a lot of people in the United States are like, only local, anything from anywhere else is 100% evil and bad. Have you noticed this? Kind of, yeah. Like it's with, interesting. Like with the woo-woo farmer's market set. Yes, exactly. And no, no offense if you love a farmer's market. Yes, no. Farmer's I, markets are cool. I like a farmer's market. The farmer's markets are usually where I go to get my local honey to try to help with my allergies when oh. I move to a new place and have allergy uh, attacks. It works really well. So none of this is to say, you know, that our current mainstream food supply chain system is perfect, right? Obviously, there's a lot of problems that come around with this whole process. There's negative aspects of relying heavily on commercial farming in general to feed ourselves. It's heavily integrated into capitalism, which, you know, not my favorite thing. And when you look at these issues, you start to see why things like more local food sourcing or at-home farming, why they get appealing. So there's a few things that stand out to me as being like these major issues that happen with a food production chain like this. And one major issue with industrial commercial farming is waste, just how much waste it creates. Um, I know, kind of, you didn't have to read The Grapes of Wrath. No. In school, I did. And all I think about when I hear about this types of farming is The Grapes of Wrath. Because in that book, they talk about how much food goes to waste while American people are starving and dying from hunger during the Dust Bowl. And it's like these really like riveting scenes, you know, where the farmers got subsidies for this food from the U.S. government, but then they have to light the food on fire and burn it because part of the subsidy is that they guarantee they won't sell it. And meanwhile, all these people who are starving to death have to watch all this food get burned. And it's like this whole fucked up thing that you're just like, oh, my God, this is all cap like complicated by capitalism, basically. So obviously now we're not in the middle of a dust bowl, but there is still a lot of food waste that is facilitated all while people do go hungry. So some people argue that American food purchasing on the whole tends to be pretty impulsive. We tend to overestimate how much we will actually eat in a setting or a time period. And we also underutilize things like leftovers and don't really integrate composting into our national trash management systems, which means we do just end up 
in general, throwing away more food scraps than we should. And we talked about this in our episode about trash called Garbage Gravy. That was episode number 38. Ugh. It's a really gross name. But most of our landfills are indeed food scraps. And that is one major component of how food is wasted, unfortunately. Today, Americans throw away about 25% of the food we purchase for at-home consumption. So while home food waste accounts for 43% of all total food waste in the country, restaurant and grocery store food waste accounts for 40%. Uh, farm waste accounts for 16% and manufacturers for around 2%. But U.S. food waste in general accounts for more than every other country in the world, coming in at 40 million tons per year or 219 pounds of waste per person per year, which means that every single day, each of us individuals, we waste around 1.6 pounds of food. Not an individual level alone, obviously, it's a systemic thing, but 43% of that, or around 0.7 pounds per day, that's specific to our individual at-home waste habits with food. Whoa. Yeah. And in total, data suggests that today, 40% of all food grown and produced in the United States, it's never eaten, which is up from around 23% back in 1970. So one estimate suggests that 2% of total annual energy use in the United States is used to produce food that is just later wasted. Hmm. So yeah, so we have this thing where we're putting all this effort into making all this food, right? And then a huge portion of it, 40% of it, almost half of it just goes to waste. And it's not just the food that's getting wasted. It's all of these resources. It's human resources like labor, right? Um, it's just unproductive labor, labor we don't need. It's also energy, right? And energy we know takes a toll because a lot of the energy we have here in the United States is not clean or renewable energy. We use fossil fuels, so that takes a toll on our planet. It's just like a lot that goes into it all for nothing, basically. And I think that that's like interesting to at least consider. So one of the biggest reasons for this is that people throw out food a lot that they perceive to be expired. It's not like people are just consciously trying to be assholes and like throw away food. It's honestly just that studies show that more than 80% of Americans will discard perfectly good consumable food because they are confused by the expiration label on the package. So labels read things like sell by or use by or best by. And there's no kind of standardized way to make sense of these. Like it's not written the same way on everything. And American consumers would rather throw something away than risk getting sick from it. Yeah. Especially if they know that it's not super expensive to just go buy another one. Mm -hmm. So some experts think that American perceptions of food being abundant and easy to access at a grocery store have warped our culture, like attitude towards food consumption in general and made it so we don't appreciate it, which kind of just sounds like that America bad drivel we're used to hearing. But it also could actually be a byproduct of general global capitalism on the whole. So this kind of ties in with the idea of food deserts, a variety of food and availability of food. So in the United States, the reality is that, yes, for many people, the types of food readily available that we're eating the most, it is really cheap and abundant. And that could be true. So if you're looking at ketchup in your fridge and you're like, oh, it says like used by yesterday, you're just going to throw away and go buy more ketchup because ketchup's not super expensive, right? But there's a reason why ketchup isn't super expensive. And that's a systemic overarching region and reason, and that's not your fault. Very few people are going to let something expensive go to waste. Like, I don't know, what's like an expensive meat, like a fancy fish steak. or a steak, something like that. They're going to use it. But most people aren't eating that type of food as their primary staples in their fridge. They are eating these really cheap and abundant foods. 
So according to the CDC, a person's zip code alone is a greater predictor of their health and life expectancy than other factors, including genetics. And this is also going to be a content warning. We're going to be talking about uh, the types of food that people eat. So if you want to skip that, this is a pretty short section, but I think it'll be around three to five minutes long. So where you live is kind of like part of something called a social determinant of health, which is abbreviation, abbreviated to an SDOH. And this influences not only public health at an individual level, but also on a whole community level. And access to healthy food, public safety, and environmental factors, they all go into your SDOH. And access to healthy food, that first one, that largely depends on where you live. And that's why you might be in a position where the types of foods that you're eating are really cheap and easily replaceable and abundant. Nearly 39.5 million Americans, which is 12% of the total U.S. population, live in food deserts, which is a huge amount of people. And a food desert obviously is a place where healthy fresh fruit and vegetables are just not readily available. And most of these happen in low-income neighborhoods. But cheap available vegetables, they tend to be mostly based around potatoes and tomatoes. This is like, if you're eating vegetables in the United States, there's a really good chance that most of what you're eating is just potato or tomato. So Janine Bentley, who's a social science analyst at the USDA's Economic Research Service says, when you look at it, there just isn't much variety. In 2013, nearly 50% of all vegetables and legumes available in the United States were either tomatoes or potatoes. That's it. Hmm. So it's like, we got all this food, but it's mostly just potato, tomato. Okay. Right? So then these low-income neighborhoods in particular, they're eating potatoes and tomatoes, but they're not even getting them fresh. Lots of times they're being eaten in the form of things like frozen prepackaged French fries you get in the freezer section at a store, bottles of ketchup, uh, frozen pizzas, which aren't necessarily nutritious, but are cheap and readily available. And according to Marion Nestle, a leading nutrition researcher and an author at NYU, uh, we have a serious disconnect between agriculture and health policy in our country. The USDA does not support specialty crops, like varieties of vegetables, to any appreciable extent. And the Department of Commerce figures show that the relative price of fruits and vegetables has gone up much faster than that of fast food or sodas. So she explains that Americans are told to eat fruits and vegetables all the time, right? But the government heavily subsidizes less healthy crops that end up in cheap, less healthy processed foods. And then those less healthy processed foods become readily available in poor neighborhoods. So Nestle explains that the price of things has a lot to do with how people choose to eat and interact with food. So that brings us to the third thing, which is expense. Okay, so when it comes to like the expense of food and like the convenience of food, this all stuff like it intuitively makes sense to me um, because when I was growing up, most of the food I ate was fast food. Like when I was a kid, I thought that's just where all food came from was like fast food places. And my dad and I ate mostly off the dollar menu almost every single day. And when we didn't eat off the dollar menu, most of the time I ate frozen like prepackaged foods. But the whole thing about like how expense plays into the food we eat, that's also like going along with just how we interact with large scale farming in general. So even though the United States has access to readily available cheap foods, we also struggle with wide scale inordinate amounts of poverty. So more than 34 million people in the United States experience food insecurity or hunger, and that number obviously greatly impacts communities of color. So the average American will spend around $45 per month on fresh fruits and vegetables as a component of a household budget that's usually around $400 per month on groceries total and $200 per month on dining out. And that was really interesting to me because I assumed that you would be spending more of your budget on like fresh fruits and vegetables than that. It's like 
what, less than 25% of your budget or whatever is going towards that? Yeah. I mean, maybe it makes sense from like, you know, you're like, oh, well, frozen prepackaged stuff lasts longer. Right. Totally. It does. And like lots of places, if they're in a food desert, just don't have a lot of vegetables available. So what are you going to buy? Like $200 worth of potato? Probably not. Right. So I guess that does make sense. But in general, most American households are spending around $600 per month on food in total, which is significant when you consider that minimum wage jobs in the United States pay around $1,100 per month for full-time work. So it's no wonder that during peak pandemic lockdowns, for example, low-income people find at-home gardening and farming to look really appealing. Money is tight. It gets harder to justify spending money on something you could just grow yourself, even if it means more work. So this year, the number of people experiencing hunger in the United States is supposed to come out by the end of the year around 50 million people. Whoa. Yeah, it's a massive uptick. And the face of people struggling to eat at home gardening is at the very least like a stopgap to keep people alive and something that large scale commercial farming only minimally contributes to through like food bank programs and things like that. So all of this kind of like works together in this perfect storm of how people eat. And basically what we see is we got a lot of broke people a lot of people who have very limited access to diverse types of foods, a lot of people who are buying what is cheap and readily available to them, uh, a lot of people with fancy degrees yelling at us all that we're eating like shit and we're killing ourselves, and us being like, okay, what the fuck am I supposed to eat then? And then all the factory farmers just pumping out corn, potato, tomato. And you're like, corn, potato, tomato, that's what I've been eating. And it's not, that's not what the fancy degree people are telling me to do, right? So that kind of brings me to this next point with mainstream farming, which is just like inefficiency. It's a really inefficient system. So these highly centralized food supply chains are also more susceptible to things like natural disasters, which can result in food chains being harmed for much greater centers of the population. Like when you have the fact that most of the food in the United States that we eat that's grown here is being produced by just 5% of the farms, what happens if half of those are involved in some sort of natural disaster? suddenly you're losing a huge portion of your food supply chain because it's been relatively centralized and monopolized by a few major farming corporations. On top of that, there's also these other inefficiencies um, that are brought about more directly by the bizarre ways that farming is commodified in the United States today. So the majority of food grown in the United States is corn, right? We, we grow corn. We got a corn belt. You know about the corn belt? Oh, yeah. Like right? Nebraska, Iowa. Yes. Exactly. And then that's followed closely by soy. Yeah. So the foods we're eating, though, remember, it's tomato, potato. So we're growing soy and we're growing corn, but those aren't even the foods that we're eating the most of. In a system of capitalism, corn ends up being this appealing crop to grow, though, because it's pretty easy to grow and it has these incredibly high yields, meaning it's profitable. And corn, instead of being used to feed people, ends up getting used to feed animals uh, in a system of animal agriculture, as well as getting turned into like high fructose corn syrup, which we do end up eating in roundabout ways, or like bio-based plastics. So in total, 40% of U.S. corn ends up getting used just for ethanol alone, and 36% is used to feed animals. And only a tiny fraction of, you know, the national corn crop in all its glory, is directly used for food for Americans to eat. I love corn. Like that little boy. I've never seen this. I don't know what side of TikTok I'm on, but I miss every trend. I I never see the trends. Everybody at work is like, oh, the corn boy. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Is it Jonathan Davis from corn? corn? I don't, I've never, I still haven't seen it. It's very cute. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe I'll look it up. But it does make me be like, you know, 
Corn on the cob is good. Corn on the cob is so good. I, I love it. It's so good. It's so great. But most of the times that Americans end up eating corn, we just end up eating it in the form of high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, I think, yeah, the last time I ate corn was at a barbecue. Yeah, that sounds good. On the grill. Yeah. Oh, and then you put all the stuff on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, you know what I miss is elote. Yeah. And had the mayonnaise, but I can't eat mayonnaise anymore. Oh, okay, whatever. Now we're off on a tangent. This episode is making us both hungry, I think. We love corn. We love corn. Especially the band. So whatever, we got the United States, our corn is this high productive crop, uh, and the amount of food coming from our American corn system, which it's referred to as corn system, <laughs> that's actually really low. So to put it plainly, the American corn system is just really inefficient at feeding people. And on top of all of that, we've made our farming here kind of like a monoculture. So industrially, it makes sense to grow a lot of corn. However, when we see massive monocultures like corn is in the U.S. today, when we see them happen historically, we see that they fail and usually in these really major ways. Like a single disaster or disease or new pest could completely wreak havoc on the corn system. And by default, the United States was just heavily invested in it, affecting food prices, energy prices, all these things. And being heavily invested in any one singular thing, it's just risky. It would also be more economically reasonable to have diverse varying crops planted in the United States instead, as well as being better for human beings who live here. Like the USDA recommends that adults have two and a half to three cups of vegetables per day, but the USDA itself found that the United States only has 1.7 cups of vegetables per person per day even available in the country to consume. Whoa. Yeah. So all this stuff they're trying to tell us to do to become the perfect healthy consumers we exist in a system where that's literally impossible. I like how they're just like, you got to do this. Like, yeah. You know, and it's just like, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. How about incentivizing people to grow the foods that we're supposed to eat that are actually good for us then? Yeah. I mean, like, I won't even go off the good. We're like, food should be free. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it's food like, should be free, obviously. I, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's just like, uh, it's the same thing where it's like why don't you do this thing that's not even fucking possible right and then when you're like we're failing to do the thing they're like you lazy fucks yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm like oh like... shit they're like it's because you like french fries and i'm like obviously i fucking like french fries who doesn't, who doesn't like i mean french fries? it's okay if you don't like french fries but you know i'm gonna say it's not okay i'm gonna say there's something no <laughs> that's like me and celery <laughs> yeah kind of in celery um but yeah no and it's like okay so out of the 1.7 cups of vegetables that are even available per person per day we know that 50% of it that's available is just potato tomato. So like, where are we supposed to get these dark leafy greens and all these rich nutrients that everyone with the fancy degrees keeps telling us is how we're supposed to eat. So according to the CDC, 87% of American adults fail to meet these recommended vegetable intake recommendations that they had in 2007 to 2010, which hearing all this, you're like, no shit. And this is more pronounced in poor states like Mississippi, for example, where only five and a half percent of people got enough vegetables to eat. And you can compare this to wealthier states like California. Um, but here we're not even doing that great. 13 percent of people got the recommended vegetable intake here, which is, you know, still low, but it's over twice what it is in Mississippi. So you can see that this stuff really, really fucks with poor people in a major, major way. A 2010 study in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine estimated that the U.S. vegetable supply would need to increase by 70%, almost entirely in dark leafy greens, orange vegetables, and legumes in order for Americans to be able to meet that recommended daily vegetable allowance, Whoa. which is massive. And unfortunately, the U.S. industrial farming system 
is not going to do that. They're not going to do that. And they're not going to shift away from corn focused production anytime soon because the corn system here receives more subsidies from the U.S. government than any other crop, including like things in the form of direct payments. Like the government will just give you money to grow corn. Also crop insurance payments and mandates to produce ethanol. So you have like this built in consumer base if you're growing the corn. In the meantime, you can see why growing your own vegetable garden starts to sound like this good opportunity to potentially provide yourself with access to a variety of vegetables and produce that the mainstream farming industry fails to provide in a reasonable and widespread way, right? You hear this and you're like, where the fuck am I supposed to get all this healthy vegetable shit? Where am mm -hmm. I supposed to get the bomb heirloom tomatoes? Oh, it's still tomato potato though. <laughs> Not even the good heirloom tomatoes can save us, right? But whatever the case, you know, you get it. Like you, you start to realize you're like, okay, so capitalism and the U.S. government are in cahoots to be like, fuck you, right? Yeah. And then you're just supposed to try to survive it the best you can. And you get why people are like, fuck it, then I'll do it myself because yeah. nobody else is doing it. And then obviously one of the major things, I think that people talk about this a lot when it comes to factory farming and industrial farming, it's ecological issues. Like it's bad for the planet. Mm -hmm. So when we think about this large-scale farming, we know that it has the potential for widespread ecological impact and usually in a negative way. Like one of the main things that kind of goes along with this, which we kind of touched on, is energy. So to start, the system requires enormous amounts of energy to maintain it. Home refrigeration alone accounts for 13% of all energy consumed by our food system. Like today's convenience stores rely heavily on refrigeration for preservation. And if you consider a smaller, more efficient refrigerator or buying smaller quantities of fresh produce more frequently, like that would reduce your overall energy output when it comes to how we store and maintain our food. And this is what we hear when we hear people talk about like the French way of eating, where you just go out and you buy the food you're going to eat that day. And that's what you eat for dinner tonight. But like, we don't have that luxury in the United States. We can't just fucking walk everywhere. We can't walk everywhere. There's not a lot of convenient places for us to even buy food. Uh, our commutes to and from work add an extra like hour onto our day easy. So we don't have time to do this shit. I'm like, I'm also fucking tired. Right. We're tired. This just isn't that realistic, you know? Like, yeah, that would be, that would be nice. Also, like, that sounds expensive. It's just, it's a lot. And I think about this too, because I like to bulk buy my foods because I'm very budget conscious. Like I go to Costco to buy things like, I don't know, giant tubs of butter and shit like that. Vegan butter, margarine. They have the accidentally vegan butter there. Um, but you know, it's like, it's cheaper because you buy it in bulk. Like the things that people are recommending that you do to help reduce your energy output when it comes to food is to like buy smaller refrigerators. And I just don't think that that's a super realistic thing to ask of people. I will say that refrigerator efficiency did more than double from 1977 to 1997, but we did just make them like a lot bigger and that kind of offset the energy efficiency. So it's not <laughs> getting worse, you know, it's kind of stagnating, but that's a thing. I think more that, than that though, there's like the consolidation of farms and food processing operations, which we touched on earlier and distribution warehouses that are kind of like monopolized and at the very least like kind of not monopolized, but under the control of 5% or so of all total farming operations, right? They're these big places. And that ends up increasing the distance between food sources and consumers, because now all of a sudden you have fewer places you're getting food from, which means your transportation carrying the food to and from those locations ends up being longer distances, if that makes sense. So today, transportation accounts for approximately 14% of the total energy used in the US food system. Wow. So there, that is a good thing about like going to the local farmer's market. You're not using this ton of food or growing food in your backyard. Like 
you're not using a ton of energy. That's what I was looking for to get the food just to you, which makes sense. Uh, because of imported fruits and vegetables typically traveling further than domestic produce from farm to table, they also end up causing greater harm from carbon emissions and pollution. And that's especially true for produce arriving by air, which is likely to be fresher, but it also costs a little bit more than produce arriving by ships and takes a worse toll on the planet. So there's all these things to consider about the energy consumption, but it is worth mentioning that transport miles are just one component of environmental cost. And in some cases, Fruits and vegetables that are grown in a climate more suitable for them, even if that climate is overseas, they will require fewer resources and less energy for farming. And it might actually be more generally sustainable than off-season domestic production of that same fruit or vegetable, which is cultivated in, for example, a heated greenhouse. So sometimes local isn't necessarily better from an energy component, and you can see that it ends up being just this really complicated math problem that's really hard to even try to figure out. Yeah. There is another component to kind of the environmental impact, which is greenhouse gas emissions. I feel like by now we all know that large livestock farms generate air pollution that can be hazardous to human health because it's just funny to think about methane gas emissions from cows. Yeah, cow it's farts. Cow fart. It's funny. We know that, right? But in total, agriculture was responsible for nearly 10% of the United States total greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. And remember, most of that is corn getting used for what to feed animal crops and to make ethanol. It's not even the stuff that we're eating. So methane, nitrous oxide, and carbon dioxide are the main greenhouse gases emitted by those agricultural activities, which we don't even really directly benefit from a lot of them in terms of like food source. It comes from livestock, yes, but it also comes from soil management issues, which is another major contributor. Hmm. Uh, then there's also the issue of just pollution in general. Agriculture is a major source of pollutants that produce things like algae blooms and dead zones in the Great Lakes, the Gulf of Mexico, and all these other water bodies. And nutrient runoff from the upper agricultural regions of the Mississippi River watershed, that creates this hypoxic dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. The 2017 hypoxic dead zone was the largest measured since 1985, coming in at over 8,000 square miles in size. Oh my God. Yeah, so from 2007 to 2012, there was also pesticide use, which increased by 10%, while herbicide use increased by 20% from 2010 to 2014. And in 2012, the US agriculture sector used 899 million pounds of pesticides. Now, pesticides are generally good, right? They're something that makes it more efficient to farm. They help us have more access to food, theoretically. But also, like, pesticide runoff just isn't really well managed. A lot of it falls on individual farms themselves, and it's like a weird honor system. And, you know, in a system of capitalism, people tend to do what's most profitable for them. And managing this kind of runoff from pesticide water isn't necessarily profitable to take on yourself if nobody's enforcing it or making you do it. Another issue that kind of arises from this, which is one that I thought was particularly interesting with all this industrialization of farming, is alienation from food, food production in general and a lack of food literacy. I feel like a lot of us don't know what we're supposed to know about how food works. Like, I feel like we get these like buzzwords thrown at us, like GMOs, organic, and we kind of have these vague ideas of how what this means and how it interacts in our lives. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it feels like uh, just kind of like um, overload, like information overload. You don't know what sources to trust. You don't know what's real. And it's hard to get to the bottom of it. So there's this growing kind of alienation amongst Americans from their food source, which affects what some people call, yeah, food literacy, which is what I was explaining. 
And consumers tend to think that they know more about how food works than they actually do. And that is really shocking because consumer confidence in agriculture itself isn't even high to begin with. So consumers will come in and be like, I don't know that much about how food works. I know a little bit. And then what ends up happening is they know even less than they thought. Mm. So one major source of confusion for consumers is genetically modified food. So according to the food literacy and engagement poll that was recently conducted at Michigan State University, more than one third of Americans thought that foods without genetically modified ingredients contained no genes at all. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in reality, all foods contain genes, all people contain genes. But in this study, people were like genetically modified foods. Are there genes in it? And they were like, no, one third of Americans. Okay. Right. So perhaps most shockingly, the people who were most likely to answer that question incorrectly, they tended to be people who were younger, richer, and also described themselves as having a higher than average understanding of the global food system. Mm. So what ends up happening is these people think that they have that kind of insider knowledge, insider information that people don't want you to know. But what they really have is a totally poor understanding of what terms mean, the science of food. They're kind of going off these pseudoscience fear mongers on the internet. And they end up just being afraid of key words without actually understanding why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times the people who are trying to make them afraid of these words, like GMO, like genetically modified, uh-oh, those people end up trying to sell them something in the end. Yeah, it's, I feel like there's so, there's so much grift on the internet. I mean, like, obviously, but it's like, still sometimes mind blowing. Right, it's shocking. So in reality, genetically modified agriculture is viewed by most scientists, like the overwhelming majority of scientists, as being the only potential way to feed a growing population in the face of issues like poverty and climate crisis. Today, the UN predicts that the world population will rise from around 7.5 billion to 9.7 billion by the year 2050, meaning that global food production has to increase by at least 50% in the next 30 years to keep up with that population growth. And this isn't to say that population growth is an issue. It's not like the world is becoming overpopulated and that's actually a thing people care about or should be addressed. I think that when people say that, it's like usually weird eugenic shit. I think I it's really like fucking it's, weird. Yeah. Every time someone says like it's overpopulated, there's some, it's like, it's kind of like a weird dog whistle. Yeah. It's like they want to kill poor people or something like that. So there's, there's nothing wrong with people being born on the world. There's enough space and things to sustain them. However, one of the things that is fucked up is that climate change, we're like destroying the planet, which means we need to come up with these new solutions to grow food because the climate is changing and our food production depends on the climate. So genetically modified agriculture, you know, it's rapid scientific innovation and it does things but like make it easier to grow food. You know, it creates foods that grow without fertilizers, that survive flooding, that supply more vital nutrients to communities, especially those that are struggling with poverty. However, when you have all this backlash against just the idea of genetically modified foods, what ends up happening is that people get resistant to increasing genetic modification that could in fact be saving lives and feeding more people in the future. Because consumers lack this understanding of what it is that they're actually mad at and what exactly genetically modified foods are. So we end up having this wide disparity between genetic or scientific perception of genetically modified foods and consumer understanding of what it means. Today, over 75% of packaged foods in the United States feature some kind of genetically modified food ingredient. Genetically modified foods are found in corn, sugar, and soy, found in almost every part of Americans' diets. However, 46% of Americans either aren't sure if they've ever eaten GMOs or say they rarely, if ever, do. 
which, you know, I guess is possible, but it would seem highly unlikely given what we know about Americans' food patterns. Lots of scientists do blame the internet for spreading potentially dangerous misinformation about genetically modified foods, which puts billions of people at risk of hunger in the future if natural food production is unable to keep up with that population growth. So nearly half of Americans say that they never or rarely seek information about where their food is grown, how it's produced, but those who do said they would not trust scientists to answer those questions for them, which is pretty concerning. Uh, Only 59% of respondents said that they would trust information about food safety if it came from an academic scientist. That number dropped even lower for different types of scientists. Only 49% would trust information about food safety if it came from a government scientist. And only 33% said that they would trust it if it came from a, like a leading industry scientist. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, not because I particularly am like the government and corporate scientists want to tell us all truths, you know, but I just thought that at least like the, um, you know, academic scientists, like what, they don't have any skin in the game. What, why would they lie to you? Yeah. It's just like, sometimes I feel like it all, people are just like, well, I just believe what I want to believe. Right. And I think also sometimes having some beliefs gets you entrance to kind of like a social click, even if it's just on the internet. I mean, like, I think it's fine to have like some skepticism, but at some point there are some things that you need to know that are like, whether they're true or not you know? Right, exactly. Or like from a trusted source. It's just, I think just the way that our system is set up, it makes it so it's really hard to trust people anymore. That's totally true. I mean, I think like, also, there are, there are ways that you can view the situation that aren't taking like a hard black or white stance. Like, you can leave something like genetically modified foods and be like, okay, there is no evidence that genetically modified foods are dangerous. We know we've been eating them for decades, and we haven't seen any increase in ill effects from them. Um, however, that doesn't mean that never in the future could there potentially be a genetic modification that occurs to a food that ends up having an adverse effect on a population. But then people are just like, but then never. Right. People are very always or never. But when you look at that and you're like, from what we know right now, this has the potential to feed billions of people in a cost-effective way. And Mm -hmm. it's better that people don't die of starvation than that we, you know, get kind of uh, skeptical about this thing to an unnatural degree when there is no evidence to suggest we should yeah. be worried about it at this time. There is evidence that shows if you don't eat food, you die. You know, <laughs> like we got that. People need to eat something. So, you know, the average American person today basically isn't knowledgeable enough about farming to answer questions about food production on their own, but they're not trusting scientists. Today, fewer than 2% of Americans live on farms, and farmers themselves are aware of how little the general American public citizen just, like, understands about their own food. 86% of farmers say that the average consumer has little to no understanding or knowledge about modern farming or ranching. And 58% go as far to say that consumers have a completely inaccurate perception of it altogether. Hmm. In a world where consumers aren't sure who to trust, you can see why taking the power back into your own hands and just growing your food on your own looks like a really appealing alternative for people who can manage it, right? If something bad happens, you got nobody to blame but yourself, and you kind of feel like you have control over what's going into your body. Yeah. A little bit. So another main issue with this large-scale industrialization of farming is that it makes farming, like any other industry under capitalism, rife with human rights abuses. And I know this especially from growing up in California's Central Valley. Um, There, 48% of the agricultural labor force between 2014 and 2016 were people who lacked the legal authorization to work in the United States. And it's a problem, but not in the way like most conservatives like to think. Like 
immigration in itself isn't a problem whether people come here through the legal system or not like we've talked about this before in episodes actually where immigration stimulates the economy and even in a system of capitalism is good for people in communities where immigrants end up landing however the issue is that it sets people up to be really vulnerable to human rights and labor exploitation so what we end up happening is having like what we end up have happening is all of these systems where people are literally being human trafficked to work in fields. So when you are, you know, undocumented, sometimes you will lack like the certain protections in place that will protect you from having your rights like violated and being taken advantage of within the system. And victims of labor trafficking have been found among the U.S.'s migrant and seasonal farm workers, including men, women, families, even children as young as five or six years old, who harvest crops and raise animals in fields, packing plants, orchards, and nurseries. And when you are kind of in a place like Fresno, you hear a lot about this happening, right? People are being exploited, people are being trafficked, people have their passports held um, so that they can't leave, people are being paid these really, really horrible sub-minimum wages, they're being forced to live in houses like group style houses on farms that are not suitable for human life whatsoever. They're being forced to work against their will. And oftentimes even just like driving outside of the city on 110 degree day, you'll see people working in fields, just sweating, like picking food. And I think this is really um, important thing for us to remember because this is why so many people talk about how even being vegan, that doesn't mean that you're eating ethically because the food you're eating, the vegetables you're eating, most of the time, there's a pretty good chance that it was picked or harvested with exploitative human trafficking, usually of people of color. So that is like another thing, obviously, this happens in every industry under capitalism, because capitalism is a system that incentivizes profit above all else. And one of the ways to maximize profit is to cut expenses. And a lot of the ways that people cut expenses is through sketchy labor practices, right, which is unfortunately other people's lives and livelihoods. And that's how we end up with forced labor. And it wasn't always this complicated, just trying to figure out how to eat food, right? When agriculture first started to develop in human history, it was sub, uh, subsistence-based, which just means that people were growing enough food to feed themselves and their communities, typically mixed in with hunting and gathering and foraging to some degree, which is to say they weren't really doing it as an industry. It wasn't a commercial enterprise. You just grew food so you could eat it, and it made the whole system a lot less complicated. Unlike commercial farming, which tends to just focus on one or a couple of crops for mass efficiency, subsistence farming tends to be super diverse. You usually get to mix a bunch of different types of crops in close proximity to each other, usually in these complementary groups to help replicate a natural ecosystem and improve the quality of the soil. So people weren't trying to create another dust bowl, basically, which we referenced in episode 50, Don't Go Chasing Watersheds. So for example, you might grow corn, beans, and squash all next to each other, and this would create what's called a polyculture, which would have bountiful harvests without stripping nitrogen and other nutrients fully from the soil. And if you grew these things dense enough, these little gardens, you also didn't have to deal with as many invasive weeds getting mixed in. And these small, dense farms were relatively easy to manage. You didn't need fancy fertilizers or a ton of equipment. It was hard work, sure, but it was work most people could figure out how to do. The people who ate the food were usually also the people who were qualified to help grow it. And subsistence farming had some advantages. Growers can save seeds and cultivate perennial crops so there's less waste. There's access to natural fertilizers like manure or fish remains that wouldn't really work on this like massive large scale. And because farmers weren't involved in trade or sales of goods, they didn't need to find ways to transport their crops to market, which in a current system like ours would mean a lot less emphasis placed on that energy that's used for transportation. There are some drawbacks to subsistence approaches too, like 
The ability to produce crops is limited by labor. One person can only do so much work. And that work is hard, meaning it's not realistic to expect every person to physically even be able to grow their own food. It's also limited by a lack of modern tools or technology, just because of the scale and the budget. Like, you're not going to use a tractor to handle a really small plot of land that's like five by five feet. A subsistence farmer is also more likely to be at the whims of nature because things like droughts or floods or earthquakes might have catastrophic effects on their ability to farm and thus to survive. So if, for example, you have a bad season for your local area of growing produce, without the ability to trade within a global marketplace or at least, you know, talk with neighbors who live far enough away that they didn't endure the same kind of catastrophic event that you did, you can very easily find yourself totally starving. Subsistence farmers had varying success around the globe as a result of all of these things. However, the places that practiced successful farming on the scale tended to also have equal access to land plots for community members, as well as a minimum expenditure of agricultural labor to produce subsistence amounts of food. To put it plainly, farming was most successful, like most things, when it was done at a community level and people worked smarter, not harder. When we really start to see like the commercialization of farming, uh, it's kind of when people started talking about capitalism in general. Obviously, we had serfdom before, right? Like, serfdom was a major thing that dealt with, like, food production. But when we really started to see it in the lens of capitalism, one of the early examples in the, in the 1500s. So in the 1500s, this kind of started to manifest in places like Japan, where farmers found themselves regularly encountering these farming surpluses. And that kind of encouraged commercialization of food sources because they were like, well, look, we got all this extra stuff. Maybe we could try to sell it. But when we think about kind of farming from our vantage point today, I think that where it makes the most sense to talk about it from an American perspective is in the 1700s. Not just in the United States, but also in England, obviously, because, you know, colonization of the United States from Europe, they're, the two kind of went hand in hand, and we had a lot of back and forth between our approaches to farming and gardening in general. So in the 1700s here in the United States, we obviously saw colonization happening in a major way. Native people, you know, had these complex relationships with nature and created hybrid forms of agriculture that worked really well with natural systems. They were heavily advanced, heavily developed, very intelligent systems. But white European colonists, when they arrived, had no knowledge of how to interact with the land in this capacity. And instead, they built houses, and those houses relied on home gardens for food. And these home gardens were small enclosed gardens located just outside of people's front doors, full of essential edible foods as well as medicinal herbs. Colonists with more capital, of course, would enslave people and force them to maintain their home gardens on their behalf, which is like a microcosm of the large-scale plantation-style farming that was happening at an industrial level in the United States, too. Additionally, enslaved people maintained their own vegetable gardens in an effort to feed themselves, all after obviously doing a backbreaking day of work, tending to somebody else's home and garden to feed them, too. While all this was happening kind of in the United States, back in England around the 1790s, you know, people had been kind of surviving in the English countryside for centuries. So every country dwelling at that time was growing its own fruit and vegetables to survive. But by the end of the 18th century, we saw the widespread development of the Enclosure Acts. And this is when we really start to think about how we fenced in the commons. That's a thing people will talk about a lot. And this created legal property rights and strict ways in the region and really preempted a lot of the fucked up ways we engage with private property and capitalism today. The result was a well-populated rural countryside that lacked both land to live on and farm on, but also employment to get money to pay for food. So in general, all these people were really fucked over. People were starving, there were food shortages, there were disastrous harvests. And by 1790, allotments started to pop up, which were plots of lands that were made available for individual non-commercial gardening and the growing of food plants 
basically so all these people living in the countryside didn't die. And these plots were formed by subdividing pieces of land into anywhere from a couple to several hundred parcels that were assigned to households so they could grow food. And this might sound like a pretty good thing, but again, remember, prior to fencing in the commons, people just had access to the land and could grow all the food that they wanted. So the only reason that they ended up even getting these allotments was because all of the people in the countryside were so angry they were going to tear down the whole government and burn the country down, basically, because they could not live. So then back in the United States in the early 1800s, you know, this has been kind of going on in England, settler colonialist like kind of mentality was really pushing that manifest destiny agenda and people started invading the West. So when they invaded the West, they brought their gardens with them. And these gardens at the time started to get called kitchen gardens. They were run for maximum sustenance, not beauty. They had fruit trees, vegetables, herbs, and they had very few, if any, floral arrangements, but if they had flowers, they would have been things that were suitable for things like homemade dyes or aromatic fragrance for different types of projects around the house. And these gardens lived predominantly by the back door of a home, making them easier to protect and maintain as well as convenient to regularly harvest. So they were usually closed in with fencing to protect them from animals, and the early American settler colonialists would also dry fruit and pickle vegetables to ensure that they could eat year round. Now, out of all of these, you know, fucked up people in the United States, white people doing the Manifest Destiny thing that loved gardening, uh, one of the most famous ones was Thomas Jefferson. So he collected vegetable varieties from all over the world. He bred them, he tested them, he had detailed notes on all of the experiments he did with his horticulture. But also he was a famous slave owning asshole. So he didn't actually maintain this garden as much as enslaved people were forced to maintain it for him. So this is just kind of like a reminder of how the gardening system worked in the United States. It was obviously subjected to the same horrible things that the rest of the United States was subjected to. Uh, the colonization and, you know, land theft from native people, and also, you know, the forced enslavement of other people to tend to these things. So back over in England by 1830, um, you know, people were really starting to get into the idea of these kind of cottage gardens. And remember, you know, the average countryside person was working in exchange for, you know, the right to live, I guess, and they had just the allotments typically to grow food on. They didn't have their own cottage garden. But there were people who did have cottages with something like one to four acres of land available on them. And there was this gardener named John uh, Ludenwas, I believe, and he was writing that, look, all you really need to be able to feed a family of five if you're farming it properly is just one eighth of an acre. And this was pretty, pretty revolutionary uh, at the time. So Ludenwas wrote that three quarters of your space should just be potatoes, the rest of it should be cabbage, parsnips, and beans, and then you should have apples, pears, and other like fruit trees kind of against the wall of the house. And he said, look, all of this gardening work, you should just make your wife and kids do it. That's what you should have going on. Now, meanwhile, while this is all getting talked about for the people with the cottages who have the plots of land, the people who are still the men in the countryside working on other people's cottages and other plots of land, they were dealing with their own shit. The kind of jobs they had working these agricultural jobs for landlords, they had low pay, they had awful deals, and eventually everyone just kind of started rioting hardcore. They were burning down crops, they were destroying machinery, and that was all pretty cool. But it didn't actually result in them getting a bunch of their rights. At first, all the landlords were like, oh yeah, yeah, so sorry, so sorry, we'll raise your pay. But then they were like, haha, psych, never mind, you're all just getting super fucking punished for any time that you revolt. And it was this kind of struggle that happened, you know, all throughout the 1800s. 
Meanwhile, in the United States in the mid-1800s, technology was really advancing and people just kind of found themselves increasingly able to buy food from marketplaces, meaning that agriculture became this super specialized and industrialized thing. And it was, as a result, home gardening became more like a hobby. And gardens, if they existed at all, they were just ornamental, decorative for most homes. By the late 1800s in the United States, most home gardens moved from just outside the front door to becoming side and backyards and front door gardens were replaced by what we now think of as the front lawn today, which we talked about in our very first episode. So these front lawns were very showy and very decorative. By the end of the 1800s in 1897, um, over in England, the Royal Horticultural Society was celebrating Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee over in England. And they had this show at the Crystal Palace. And Ken and I were talking about this earlier, just how um, as Americans, anything that has to do with the English and the Queen is very like fascinating and bizarre to us. It's so weird. Like, <laughs> like NPR did all this coverage of like the Queen's funeral. And I was like, do any of us care if we're here in America? God. Yeah, it's really funny because the thing I think about a lot is how I like literally do not care about being an American at all until something like the Queen happens, and I'm like, yeah, America. I'm just like, queen. we don't have a Queen. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, she's not our Queen. What the? What are you talking about? I don't care about this. So basically, the Queen is an endless source of fascination to us because we are American and we don't understand it at all. I think the closest thing we have to a Queen is Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe yes. she's the American Queen. Um, so this guy, Arthur W. Sutton, he's what's called a seedsman. And when I told Kenna about uh, seedsman earlier, she almost died laughing. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very naughty name, the seedsman. I'm, I'm Mr. Seedsman. <laughs> so Sutton, the seedsman, he delivered a paper to the queen about all the progress that had happened in vegetable cultivation during Her Majesty's reign, as they called it. And um, this is just kind of interesting to me because it really talks about how, like, I don't know, farming and gardening was really getting viewed as, like, a commercial industry. This is something that they were really working on developing and figuring out how to make efficient. And Sutton delivers this really thorough account of all these new vegetable varieties that were introduced over the 60 years that the queen was queen. And there was some interesting stuff. So, for example, back in 1837, apparently the peas, they had been really hard and dry and when you cooked them, they were just known as buckshot peas because they never got soft or delicious. But by 1897, he was like, oh, look at how tender our green peas are. See, that was very exciting to them and just mildly interesting to me. Uh, also, he was like, look, we only ha used to have three forms of scarlet runner, uh, which I had to Google. It is a bean. And by 1897, they had dozens. He also talked about how Brussels sprouts and beets had been improved upon in both their size and their taste. And they had also learned all these valuable lessons from the French about the cultivation of asparagus and carrots. But the single biggest change was the tomato. So in 1852, the tomato was barely cultivated in Europe. Um, it was a byproduct of colonization. Of course, it wasn't something natural to Europe. But by 1897, it could suddenly be found in almost every single garden from the cottages upward, including the Garden of the Queen. And um, one of the most interesting things this made me think about is how when tomatoes were first brought to Europe, a lot of people thought that they were poisonous because the wealthy would eat the tomatoes and then they would die. So everybody was like, okay, these tomatoes are poisonous. We don't know how they're eating them in South America, but they're definitely poisonous and they're killing people. And what actually ended up happening is that people originally were making their plates out of lead and then glazing them. But tomatoes, when they ate them, were so acidic that it ate through the glazing of the lead plates, exposing the lead. 
And that meant that as the wealthy were eating their fancy tomatoes, they were actually eating lead from their plates, which of course made them succumb to lead poisoning and die. So apparently by 1897, they had figured out lead was the issue, not the tomatoes, and people were eating tomatoes in Europe. But for the poor around this time, growing your own food in one of those kind of allotments, that was still the best way in England you had to get a hold of fresh fruits and vegetables. For the wealthy middle class though, something more interesting was happening. Um, growing your own food in like a vegetable garden just became kind of like a symbolic rebuttal against the dehumanization of industrialization. It became something very fancy you could do to just kind of symbolically say that you were above it all and you were rejecting the system. So by 1897, there was this cult of the cottage garden that had been established, which painted a picture of rural self-sufficiency that people found really appealing. Um, but like Ken and I have talked about before, it seems like one of those things where, ironically enough, it's the people with enough money to not be totally fucked over by the system that seem to be the ones symbolically rejecting it the most. Like when we talk about people who do van life, but they spend $100,000 on a sprinter van to do it. Or when we talk about people who kind of do homesteading, but they buy a plot of land and build a custom house with solar panels and the whole nine, whole nine yards to be able to reject modern society. And it just feels like back in England at the turn of the century, you know, going into the 1900s, just like it is today, the people who are most fucked over by the systems are the ones who have the fewest options to actually leave it. Yeah. So this kind of brings us to the 1900s. In 1901, in England, you know, on the other end of the scale, away from the poor who were still growing their own food, you also had these great walled kitchen gardens uh, of Victorian and Edwardian wealthy England. And they actually adopted this semi-industrialized form of growing. They had to support enormous households with these gardens, and, you know, the gardens were massive in themselves. So there's this kitchen garden historian named Susan Campbell who talks about this and says, by the time of Queen Victoria's death in 1901, virtually every plant that could be grown in an English kitchen garden was to be found growing there. So other historians would go on to describe 1,400 different types of apples, 140 varieties of peaches and nectarines, about seven different types of apricots, about 100 different plums, and over 40 variety of cherries, all in this one garden. And they had to be really creative about how to grow these things year-round. Fruit was grown on these hollow walls heated by flues and pipes. There were pivoting wooden fruit walls which could be turned to delay or advance ripening as wanted. There were specialized glass houses that were built for melons, cucumbers, and pineapples, strawberries, and French beans. And that meant, of course, that you could enjoy all of these things out of season, like cherries in December, which was pretty revolutionary. Campbell says that by the end of the 19th century, there was virtually nothing that could not be forced for the table either before or after its normal season. So meanwhile, in the 1900s in the United States, industrialization is happening there in a really different way. So it means that Americans are relocating to these urban areas and edible gardening wasn't really happening much at all in an urban space at the time. Home gardens became more natural looking. So you had these landscapes that kind of connected houses together. Some trend-setting American garden designers, though, started using native plants, which would have previously been considered too weed-like, instead of those new nursery-cultivated varieties. And that was really ahead of the curve, in my opinion. That was kind of how we think of, you know, natural landscaping today. Mm -hmm. By 1908, in England, Local authorities were now at this time getting required by law to provide land for allotments so average people could garden uh, because, again, if they got too mad, they would just start burning shit down, which was pretty cool. And they started to realize, though, the reason that, that it was beneficial for the government to do this in care is that 
1899, from 1899 to 1902, they had the Boer War. The, the Boer War? I'm realizing it's saying it's really difficult. I wanted to call it the Boer War. It might be right. The Boer War. Um, but basically, they're like, we need some soldiers. And all the soldiers who showed up were a bunch of poor people, obviously. And they're like, oh, shit, all the poor are super malnourished. And it makes them really bad at fighting. And they're like... No shit, we've been telling you we're dying. We we need to live. So finally the government was like, okay, we need stronger men. And they realized that allotments were the way they were going to do it. They were going to give everybody allotments, make it so that legally you had to give people allotments where you were living so they could garden and they could eat food. And then if the government ever wanted to send people to fight and die in a weird war, you would not just be so frail and malnourished looking that it was pathetic to the enemy, basically. So weird, fucked up ways that these like power sources are accidentally falling upon the realization they need to kind of do something good for people. By 1914, this all paid off because England was back at war again, right? I think this was like World War I was 1914, right? And a lot of these allotment gardens started to fall in decline because men were off fighting in the war. Before the war, 80% of England's food had been imported, so this wasn't so much of a big deal. But with supplies cut off by German blockades, the 1914 Defense of the Realm Act, which is a very metal name, created new power to acquire land for vegetable growing. And in a show of support, even Buckingham Palace, with the queen, isn't she's in Buckingham Palace? Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. They started planting vegetables to encourage people to garden food of their own. By July of 1918, there were more than 1.4 million allotments in the UK, which was three times the pre-war number, and many of them inevitably were worked by women. So by 1919, between 1919 to 1939 in England, the Prime Minister had started promising homes fit for heroes for the soldiers who had been fighting in the war, and during that period, nearly 4 million homes were built in England and Wales, which meant that many families got a garden of their own at their home for the very first time there. So this kind of brings us to 1929. In the United States, the Great Depression hits, and we see broken, struggling people start turning back towards attempts at self-sufficiency wherever possible, which includes home gardening. Remember in the United States, they'd been like, we don't need to home garden anymore. We just go to the store and we buy food. But now Great Depression hits, we're on the verge of the Dust Bowl, and people are like, oh, fuck. Some people don't even have a home they can go back to. People are losing their jobs. The stock market is in chaos. All of the things that had become kind of normal life as we think of it under capitalism in the United States were, were failing. So people in industrial areas obviously struggled because they didn't have land of their own to grow food on. But farmers, meanwhile, in the countryside were also struggling because they were relatively isolated from other forms of assistance that people in the city got. So subsistence farming started to become popular again wherever it was possible. Since the food market for sales, it was extremely adversely affected by all of this. And of course, it was even more effective when the Dust Bowl eventually hit the following year. What we really see though, is that at-home gardening becomes more appealing in times of economic uncertainty or hardship. And that's a trend we see start here that continues into the future too. So I feel like this kind of ties into what we talked about at the beginning of the episode when you were like, yeah, I feel like everybody now is suddenly interested in farming, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of what happened, you know, at any point in time in history when we saw capitalism failing people, people retreated into that idea of like potential self-sufficiency. Like, okay, the whole system's failing, everything's falling apart, what can I make happen for myself? And it's really like we see it being a symbol of disappointment right and yeah. our, and our well, system I, failings that's a symbol of disappointment and a symbol of autonomy 
Right. And in autonomy, sometimes we perceive there to be some notional freedom. But I think I think it's interesting, um, and this is something we we kind of talked about in relationship to the dawn of everything that David Graeber book we're reading for our book club is this idea that David Graeber talks about where, you know, for a lot of people, true freedom, true autonomy can only come when you have your basic needs met. Mm-hmm. So it kind of is this conflicting idea that on one hand, you can't be free to do anything until you are at the very least free to live your life, which means food, shelter, all of your, you know, basic human needs are, are paid for or in some way handled. But at the same time, when you see people failing to have their basic human needs addressed, it's like a scrambling, dying rally to try to cling to whatever ideas of autonomy you have. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to get all these things I need to live myself. And yeah, it just really does represent total systemic meltdowns of the institutions that are there supposedly to protect and provide for us Mm -hmm. that we pay into. So, you know, all of this is kind of going on in the United States. We have the Dust Bowl. We have the Depression. Everything's falling apart. But by 1938, you know, finally, again, real average earnings were on the rise. And we saw food growing no longer being so vital at this individual home level, right? All of the systems are kind of returning. We had like the FDR fireside chats happening. People were starting to believe in American institutions again. And Americans kind of relinquished this idea of the home garden being so essential to sustain them. Meanwhile, in England, allotment take-up was on the decline. People just kind of started to lose the skill of home gardening altogether. And if it wasn't your actual job to farm, it just kind of became an irrelevant part of your life. Then, of course, the following year, 1939, we have World War II, right? And once again, reliance on cheap food imports left Britain in this really bad position going into the war. Anxious to avoid the shortages of the 1914 to 1918 era, the Ministry of Agriculture sprang into like immediate action. And they took its name from a leader in the Evening Standard. The Dig for Victory campaign was born. So, this is really patriotic name, right? Basically, England is like, hey, war is coming. Uh, maybe learn how to grow your own food like now. So they made these pamphlets showing novice gardeners exactly how to do things like hold a spade or dig a trench or plant a seed. And growing food at this time was suddenly painted as this really patriotic duty. And when that happened, the number of people, you know, wanting those allotment spaces, that almost doubled. So by the end of the war, Britain was feeding more people in proportion to the area of its own soil than any other country in the world. By 1941, we also saw that the United States was getting immersed in this idea of home gardening as your patriotic duty during the war. Milburn Wilson, who was the director of the USDA Extension at the time, said, Every man, every woman, every child must be ready to take his or her place. To do so requires health. One cannot expect to be physically fit, mentally alert, and ready to take it unless a well-balanced diet, including plenty of fruits and vegetables, has provided that energy and fuel which is necessary to keep in top-notch condition all the time. So you can see they're kind of taking that from the playbook of the British. They're like, ah, yes, your patriotic duty is to handle your own food because the systems are going to fail, but we're not going to say it that way, right? So by 1942, uh, food was getting rationed in the United States, and Americans were really incentivized to start growing their own food in a major way. If if the, you know, really inspiring speeches at the government level weren't doing it, the realization that the food just wasn't there for them to get, you know, because of the rations, that really was motivating. 
So Americans started to use small flower boxes, apartment rooftops, backyards, deserted lots to start growing their own food. And uh, the types of food they, they grew in these kind of spaces, they came to be known as victory gardens. Have you ever heard of victory gardens? Oh, yeah. Right. It was a, like, a major part of a wartime thing. Eleanor Roosevelt even planted a victory garden on the White House lawn, uh, which the Department of Agriculture did not like. They were, <laughs> they were like, you can't make it so obvious we're failing everybody. But whatever. States also took up the task of helping their own residents grow victory gardens. And in Oregon, for example, the Oregon Victory Garden Advisory Committee formed to help people grow personal plots of fruits and vegetables. And community groups and government agencies partnered to offer free public classes. They produced and distributed how-to manuals. They provided hands-on assistance through home visits. And uh, they broadcast gardening information on local radio, known as Oregon Public Broadcasting. Some of the most popular produce grown in these victory gardens in the United States at the time included beans, beets, cabbage, carrots, kale, lettuce, peas, tomatoes, turnips, squash, and Swiss chard. Through the distribution of several millions of government-sponsored pamphlets, fledgling farmers were advised, you know, how to maximize their garden's productivity by practicing succession planting. They were encouraged to record the germination rates and seeds along with any disease or insects that they might have encountered in their gardening, all in an order to minimize waste and improve their garden's output for the following year. So this was kind of viewed as a long-term investment in people's understanding how to grow their own food. Throughout both world wars, the Victory Garden campaign served as this like really successful means of boosting morale also kind of rallying people together in this patriotic way and safeguarding in a practical way against food shortages on the home front. It also eased the burden on commercial farmers who were working really hard, you know, to feed all the troops and civilians overseas. And in 1942, roughly 15 million families planted victory gardens in the United States. At its peak in 1943, over two-thirds of U.S. households planted fruit and vegetable gardens, producing over 80 billion pounds of food, or 40% of the fresh produce eaten by United States residents that year. Magazines printed stories about these victory gardens. Uh, women's magazines in particular gave instructions on how to grow and preserve garden produce. Families were starting to get encouraged to can their own vegetables because that would save commercial canned goods for the troops. So in 1943, families bought 315,000 pressure cookers, which obviously people use to can food. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the year before, it had only been 66,000. So this is like this huge uptick in people canning their own foods. And the government and businesses were really urging people to make gardening this family and this community effort. And the result of victory gardening was, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimating that more than 20 million victory gardens in total were planted by the end of 1943. Fruit and vegetable harvested in, this, in the home and community plots of victory gardens, that was estimated to be 9 to 10 uh, million tons, which was an amount equal to all commercial production of fresh vegetables. So the 1950s and 1960s kind of saw this lull, though, in this idea of the home garden, right? War was over. So, of course, home gardening fell in popularity again. And it wasn't until the 1970s that we started to see people get more interested in it. Like, you know, the creation of Earth Day, I think, in 1970 is when people really started to think about home gardening more. Which is interesting, because you said that um, you guys did some gardening stuff at school because of Earth Day. Yeah, we got a tree. <laughs> right. Okay, so this actually makes sense. So, around the creation of Earth Day... Not only um, were people in their homes starting to play with the idea of mixing vegetables and fruits in with their kind of decorative designs, having this edible landscaping, which started to become popular, but also 
uh, urban community gardens became more widespread, interest in organic gardening became more widespread, and school-based community gardens increased. Hmm. So we didn't have anything like this, but it's cool that you did. Did you guys have like a full school garden? I don't think they had a garden. I think they literally just gave us trees one year. Like little tiny saplings. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, though. Because, like you said, you planted it in your front yard. We may have had a school garden, but I don't frankly remember. Well, the whole goal of the school gardens was to allow students to absorb science while spending time outdoors and discovering, you know, the delight of fresh-grown vegetables, right? So urban community gardens and organic gardening did become more widespread in the 70s because of this. And additionally, in 1971, the year after Earth Day was introduced, the United States entered another recession. So the timing was kind of appropriate for this. Interest rates hit 20%. Whoa. Yeah. And American families were totally fucked over by this, obviously. So a lot of them had no choice but to start growing their own food to help sustain them and save money. 25 million families, or 39% of the population, became involved in homegrown vegetable and fruit gardens during that time. Whoa, I didn't realize that inflation went up that much. How much did inflation go up this year? What, like 10%? I think that inflation went up 8% this year, and interest rates went up from around 2.5% to 6%, if I remember correctly. So, So, like, that was even more wild than now. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, it was really intense. But just 10 years later, by 1981, the percentage of people who were, you know, dealing with home gardening dropped by 47%. And, you know, by 1985, relatively small amount of the population was still growing their own food because economic stability again returned. So again, we we see throughout history, economy bad, people farming at home. Mm -hmm. Economy good, people not so worried about it. By the 1990s, interest in small space gardening uh, started to gain a little bit of popularity because urban populations were growing at the fastest rate in history. So people started getting interested in things like containers, trellises, permanent planters built into hardscapes. And this was kind of the idea of the new home garden for Americans with small private urban spaces. But it wasn't really happening in that much of a major way. It was kind of this like novel utopian concept. By the early 2000s, edible gardens started to come back into the forefront of Americans' minds a little bit because they became more health conscious and there also was this new desire for fresh local food growing. But also, this isn't something that anybody else has drawn the parallel between, but also 9-11 happened. So again, there was this idea of systemic meltdown, systemic Mm. catastrophe, and that idea again, I think, of people wanting to take things into their own hands, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In 2009, under uh, Barack Obama, the White House planted its first vegetable garden since World War II. Wow. Yeah, and by 2013, one-third of all American households were, yes, reporting growing some of their own food. So in 2015, according to UN study, 25% of the world's population, a total of about 2 billion people, uh, still relied heavily on subsistence farming or growing their own food to sustain themselves. And this method of farming is still the most common agricultural practice in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. For example, in Tanzania, 73% of the population live in rural areas and practice subsistence agriculture. And that alone is 19 million people. And these families depend on their land to grow enough food to last them all year long. So we see worldwide that people are still living in this way where they're farming in lots of places in a major way just for them to be able to live. But in the United States, we do still tend to see that we have waxing and waning interest in home gardens in tandem with the success and failure of the mainstream economy. As capitalism fails, our interest in self-sufficiency naturally rise as a survival instinct. 
so that kind of brings us to like an assessment of like home gardening like what does this all mean politically and socially and i think there's a tendency to romanticize self-sufficiency or this idea of the off the grid self-sufficient homestead right and I understand that instinct. Like in the year 2000, ecofeminist Maria Mize argued that the free market capitalist system is inherently unsustainable in the long run, since it exploits various population groups and the environment. Instead, she argues that the catch-up model of economic development, assuming that Western-style progress is possible and optimal for everyone, should just be replaced with a more ecologically sensitive approach, which values hum harmony with nature and the goals of happiness with a high quality of life and human dignity just over this blind accumulation of wealth. So she explains subsistence as empowerment for everyone because it's based on people's strengths and their cooperation with nature and each other. And this kind of makes sense, right? However, to some degree, I also think maybe it reflects American hyper-individualization and even exceptionalism. It's kind of that I can do it all in my own mentality that denies the reality that not every person is capable of farming for themselves and providing for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I like that she's like, well, it encourages you to reach out to your community, and that's totally true. But it also denies the fact that some people, especially marginalized people, live in places where their community would actively reject or harm them. Like, liberation can't just be a logistical thing. It has to be like this multifaceted widespread thing that crosses social boundaries too. So weirdly, the thing I've heard about the role of the home garden in society that made the most sense to me, that I liked the most, was Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Random, right? So way back in the early 20th century, she said this thing that I was like, you know, this kind of makes sense. Not because I think capitalism is king, but because I think as long as we exist in the system we do have this is kind of what's rational and practical for people. She said, the object of subsistence farming is not to compete with regular farming or add to the burden of agricultural overproduction. The idea is that families engaged in subsistence farming consume their own garden products locally instead of sending them to distant markets. They are not expected to support themselves entirely by raising food like the successful commercial farmers of the country. So Roosevelt's approach was one of integrating home farming into the industrial landscape, or in our case today, it would be the post-industrial landscape, as a way to hedge your bets against the failures of capitalism. Subsistence farming on its own is not necessarily an ideal model, right? It's a vulnerable, posi vulnerable position to put yourself in. One bad season, one new pest, and you're suddenly unable to feed your family. However, subsistence farming wherein people you know, farm just to feed themselves and people in their community, it generally recognizes the cycles of renewability in nature, and it does tend to work more in harmony with the environment than large-scale kind of industrial farming does. And studies have shown that promoting home gardens among vulnerable households can improve food security and dietary diversity among those vulnerable groups. Additionally, there's like this growing body of research that suggests that food gardening offers at least a partial solution to issues like chronic disease, food insecurity, socioeconomic inequality, and shrinking social ties that we find ourselves experiencing in the United States. So there is all this evidence showing that this is something that does help people. But it sounds more like home gardening is just an essential part of a diverse and varied food plan wherein there's a larger safety net of food availability at a grand scale and more opportunity for agency over personal food decisions at a smaller scale, especially in places where the government is failing, which at this juncture, it's probably wise for us all to acknowledge repeatedly that capitalism fails pretty often. <laughs> we see it fail just in looking at the history of like home farming, like what, like every 20 years it seemed it failed. So there's kind of like these few ways that we can integrate these ideas of home farming into like our current food landscape. And one of the ones that people talk about a lot, it's kind of like a big buzzword is urban farming. Do you know what urban farming is? 
Uh, oh, maybe explain it to me. Okay, so urban agriculture or urban farming, it's something that 800 million people worldwide practice today. And it's just where you grow plants or raise animals around town, cities, and urban environments where people live. So this would be in contrast to pre-industrial rural form farms of America, and also in contrast to the industrial factory farming we see today still happening in lots of rural areas where space is key. So urban farming can take on many different forms. There could still be commercial urban farms. They're just in the city. There are also community gardens and orchards maintained by members of like a neighborhood or a region. There's also just like indoor vertical farms in people's houses in cities or hydroponic greenhouses in people's backyards. Um, there's backyard gardens, just like the one my boyfriend's family still maintains. Now they live in Louisiana and they still have a backyard garden. There's also just like landscaping your street with edible plants, which I feel like everybody mm. should be doing that. There's also like green walls, which are where food crops are grown on the outside of walls. Have you ever seen that before? Mm -mm. I've never seen it either, but it sounds really interesting to me. There's rooftop gardens. There's small scale homestead farms that exist within cities or towns. And there's even, you know, like urban beekeepers or fish farms. People do mm. fish farms in, in cities. And these urban farms can really be any size from tiny to massive and they can be businesses or they can just be personal um they can be subsistence style farming for a single household or cooperatives run by community groups and neighborhood residents that the whole community benefits from and over the past two decades or so we've really seen urban farming take off so in the united states urban farming has grown by 30 percent over the past three decades and in 2012 alone, there were over 300 urban farms in the United States, including one in Chicago that's nearly two acres in size. So if you're like me and don't know what an acre is, it's like two football fields or 36 houses. But Kenny, you grew up on an acre, so you know what an acre is. Yeah. The urban population across the developing world also grew by around 500 million people in the 2010s. And people predict that by 2025, more than half the developing world will live in urban areas. So in California, where we live, for example, 80% of the population lives in a city environment. And a key focus has been on one, making sure there's enough food to feed people, but also two, trying to shop more locally in order to reduce that kind of toll of massive transport and hyper-industrialization that's you know, kind of affecting planet in this really major way right now. Basically, people want to work towards a sustainable future and growing food where you live is a component of that future plan maybe not necessarily the whole plan because we did talk about how sometimes the more sustainable thing to do is actually just to get food from places where it grows naturally so it's less effort going into growing it but you know to be smart about what we're growing where what's coming from where and finding ways to minimize the energy output of transportation costs wherever we can so if people live in cities or towns basically they want to be able to grow food in cities and towns too Today, agriculture uses 38% of the world's land area, and it's responsible for over 70% of global freshwater consumption. And urban farming is seen as like an alternative to this widespread consumption of land and water by offering more space efficient methods for farming, and also more water efficient ones that take into account things like water recycling. Some experts say that urban farming alone has the potential to provide around 10% of vegetable crops for the entire planet. And in cities like Oakland, California, where neighborhoods are classified as food deserts, there's also like 1,200 acres of undeveloped open space, which is mostly public parcels of arable land, which is used for urban agriculture and could produce 5 to 10% of the city's vegetable needs alone if it was all utilized. There's this researcher, Miguel Altieri at UC Berkeley, who kind of deals with this in a really interesting way in the Bay Area. And he says, the potential yield could be dramatically enhanced if, for example, local urban farmers were trained to use well-tested agroecological methods that are widely applied in Cuba to cultivate diverse vegetables, roots, tubers, and herbs in relatively small spaces. 
In Cuba, over 300,000 urban farms and gardens produce about 50% of the island's fresh produce supply, along with 39,000 tons of meat and 216 million eggs. Most Cuban urban farmers reach yields of 44 pounds per square meter per year. If trained Oakland farmers could achieve just half of those Cuban yields, 1,200 acres of land would produce 40 million kilograms of vegetables, enough to provide 100 kilograms per year per person to more than 90% of Oakland residents. Altieri established a 1,000 square foot diverse garden to kind of test this idea out, with a total of 492 plants belonging to 10 crop species, which were grown in a mixed polycultural design, which we talked about earlier, which is just where you have like plants that are compatible together and would kind of exist in a natural ecosystem. So he said that in a three month period, we were able to produce yields that were close to our desired annual level by using practices that improved soil health and biological pest controls. They included rotations with green manures that are plowed under to benefit the soil, heavy applications of compost, and synergistic combinations of crop plants and various intercropping arrangements known to reduce insect pests. So Altieri thinks one of the biggest challenges to urban farming is just the mass privatization of property in general. Uh, University of California's researchers estimate that over 79% of the state's urban farmers don't own the property that they farm on. So he suggests that one solution would be for cities to make vacant land and unused public land available for urban farming under like low fee multi-year leases. Or they could follow the example of Rosario, Argentina, where 1,800 residents practice horticulture on about 175 acres of land. Some of this land is private, but property owners receive tax breaks for making it available for agriculture. He says, in my view, the ideal strategy would be to pursue land reform similar to that practiced in Cuba, where the government provides 32 acres to each farmer within a few miles around major cities to anyone who's interested in producing food. Between 10 to 20% of their harvest is donated to social service organizations like schools, hospitals, and senior centers. Now, today, it's worth noting that Cubans are struggling with access to food following the pandemic, where for two years, the impact of the U.S. embargo hit them especially hard during the additionally more difficult, you know, periods of reduced economic activity in the world of trade and tourism because of the pandemic. For more than 30 years, though, the country did enjoy some of the lowest food insecurity out of any other nation in the world. Today, the Cuban government provides rice and beans for, oh, rice and bread, sorry, for its citizens, but the global nature of food production means that even with a highly developed urban farming program, local food is not enough on its own. In April of this year, a delegation of U.S. farm sector representatives in Havana, which is American farmers on a trade tour basically in Cuba, they said that embargo restrictions put in place by the United States government during the Cold War complicate their ability to trade with Cuba at all. The United States created a loophole to its trade embargoes with Cuba in the year 2000 to allow for food sales, but it still imposes restrictions on how the food can be purchased. Paul Johnson, the co-chair of the U.S. Agricultural Coalition for Cuba, says we're hamstrung because of this embargo. Doug Kiesling, a fifth-generation farmer from Kansas who was among the delegates in Havana, says that today U.S. farmers currently export effectively no wheat to Cuba, despite being in close proximity to the country. If we can open Cuba up, that would put a lot more stuff on grocery shelves, says Kiesling. Cuban cooperative farmer Alberto, oh, Abel, Abelardo, sorry, Alvarez, says uh, to the United States, you know, we don't want you to give us anything. We just want to be able to buy and sell. It's an interesting dilemma because it showcases just how hard it is to be self-sufficient, even on a national level when it comes to food management, suggesting that urban farming can only go so far. It has to exist as a component to a more com comprehensive, diverse food planning platform that relies on some component of global interconnectivity for the sake of the environmental and crop diversity alone, in addition to the confines obviously put in place by global neoliberal capitalist commodification of food and other goods, which results in bizarre marketplace fluctuations that all nations, even those with planned economies, have to contend with on this global landscape. So if the solution is to create a multifaceted food development system that relies on things at the home gardening level all the way up to the industrial farming level, 
what's the step kind of in between the two? And I think the answer to that is community gardens. So like other forms of urban farming, community gardens on their own can't protect people against issues like famine or pandemic. But it is one component of a broad and diverse landscape of food creation that has an interesting place, I think, in our cities and towns. Community gardens are a component of urban farming, but they're one that have kind of existed for centuries. Like in the 18th century, the Mor Moravians created a community garden in Winston-Salem in North Carolina for families to use to grow crops on shared land. And we kind of see community gardens, it's the idea behind the allotments that happened in England. Since 2012, community gardens have increased by 44% in the United States, and today there are nearly 30,000 community gardens in the largest 100 cities in the United States alone. Uh, do you want to guess what the city is with the most community gardens per capita in the U.S.? It's exactly what you'd imagine. Uh, I don't know. It's Portland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, one of the most interesting community gardens to me is Spiral Gardens in the East Bay here in California, which was born out of the tradition of the Black Panther Party's desire to feed the community in the 60s and 70s. So the Black Panther Party established, obviously, the free breakfast program to feed school children. They gave away thousands of bags of groceries to the Black community. And today, Spiral Gardens is on a city-owned parcel of land on Sacramento Street, which is on a 99-year lease from the city of Berkeley. Uh, one of the co-directors of Spiral Gardens, named Conchin Don Hunter, says any food security movement is born out of the free breakfast program. Hunter calls the work of the community garden food sovereignty and says, the fact that anybody can come here, do this, learn this, participate in harvesting and eating nourishing food that's grown locally by local hands, that's food sovereignty. It's being able to say what you want to grow, eat what you want to grow, and grow what you want to eat. This area was historically a food desert. People here were dying seven to 10 years earlier than residents on the east side of Sacramento Street and from completely treatable diseases related to lack of nutrition. In keeping with tradition, former Black Panther Elaine Brown also started an urban farm to transform like a once blighted vacant lot in West Oakland, California into a thriving urban farm business that employed former offenders when they were released from prison. So from urban farms down to community gardens, all the way down to individual households, it feels like we just need food generating plants kind of everywhere we can put them. In the at-home level today, there are so many options for home gardening. There are these things called postage stamp gardens, which always seemed really interesting to me. There are these small gardens where extremely large quantities of vegetables are smartly arranged for maximum efficiency, and areas that are nearly any size are mathematically and scientifically just packed with vegetables that can coexist together in harmony and have these really huge yields. There are also container gardens, which are kind of taller standing containers that can be placed on balconies, and they can even grow like fruit trees and bushes with short root systems. And that's really great for people with mobility issues or people who aren't able to bend over to plant into the earth. They're also really space efficient and can usually be made out of upcycled materials like old boxes and even like plastic tote bags or steel pasta strainers. Mm -hmm. There's also vertical gardening where food production is kind of stacked into trellises or, you know, put on hanging systems to take advantage of small but tall spaces. There are these things called keyhole gardens, which are drought resistant and shaped in these densely packed circles. There's permascaping where food bearing perennials are planted in areas where also there's like decorative non-food producing plants that would usually be taking up space there. So they're like replacing it just with food bearing plants. There's even this thing called lasagna gardening where home food scraps can be layered to create sheet composting for gardens to be built on top of like old high maintenance lawns. So if you want to get rid of your lawn, you just like lie down a bunch of food scraps and then just like grow food bearing shit on top of it. And for people with enough money, we even see those indoor vertical food planting systems like 
garden or farm stand or Eve, um, which I'm like obsessed with these and I wish I could afford one of these because they're so cool. They're those tech savvy gardening systems that have their own apps and then they automatically water and fertilize the plants and you Whoa. can get updates on your app. Oh, that's cool. I know, but they're like 800 bucks. Whoa. I know, but they're so cool. Anyway. So I think the main takeaway from all of this is that if you're thinking of growing your own food, it's probably a sign that your government's political and economic system is currently in a state of failure. I think that's what we get from that. And I think it's an interesting psychological psychological connection that many of us aren't even acutely aware is happening. We shouldn't have to grow our own food to survive, right? We should all have access to ecologically friendly, wide-scale professional farming endeavors that are well-managed and well-maintained with our best interests in mind. In lieu of that, though, it's hard to deny the fact that growing your own food is a revolutionary act, not just for you, but for your neighbors and other people in your community. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think? Can anything interesting to add? You know, uh, if you live in a place with a lot of uh, fruit trees in Colorado, just be prepared for bears. Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's really terrifying. And if you plant a bunch of celery, Kenna's never coming to your house. No. Kenna hates celery. I do. Anything else? No. I think that's it. That's the episode on uh, Backyard Farming. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on our Patreon, which we mentioned in this episode, you can find us at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. It is $2 a month to join us there. We post uh, two bonus episodes per month. And also you can message us show ideas, give us feedback, the whole nine yards. And if you don't want to give us your two bucks a month, I totally get it. I wouldn't want to give me my two bucks a month either. We're just happy you're here. <laughs>